There was something about the radio group. Well, the time was different, of course. But I think the people involved in radio, the performance I'm talking about now. See, nobody had to get their noses fixed and nobody had to worry about weight. There wasn't the terrible competition about who was more attractive. A man who physically was not what you would call Clark Gable, Everett Sloan, God rest his soul, was the most romantic actor on radio. In a truly classical sense, he was absolutely the most appealing, masculine, macho, handsome, beguiling person. Well, that couldn't happen in any of the visual branches of the media. Good morning. America's newest fine restaurant, Tom Brenneman's, on Vine Street between Hollywood and Sunset Boulevard. Kellogg's All Bran and Procter and Gamble's Ivory Flakes serve you breakfast in Hollywood. Thursday, November 29th, 1945. It's 8 a.m. Pacific time, and we're in Hollywood, California, on Vine Street, just off Sunset Boulevard, at Tom Brenneman's brand new restaurant. Big fat face is always wide open. It's Tom Brenneman. We're here for a live broadcast of Brenneman's show, Breakfast in Hollywood. Yes, an early morning greeting to you out there at the other end of the network. Not too early, perhaps, in your locality, but a little on the early side out California way, where the ladies are having breakfast in Hollywood. We've all been given cups of coffee and glasses of juice to perk us up. Breakfast in Hollywood is heard by more than 10 million people each morning via the newly independent American Broadcasting Company. Most of the audience, both in person and over the air, are women. beginning to get little goose pimply as you get within sighting distance of the Statue of Liberty and the Golden Gate. Welcome home, gang, and we mean welcome. The weather in sunny Southern California... The show is unrehearsed and off the cuff. The major stars of the program are the guests of the show. Thanksgiving was last week, and tonight, November 29th, is the start of Hanukkah. We're officially entering the throes of a holiday season. Hello. Tell us your name. Mrs. Ports from Baltimore City. Your first name? Barbara E. Barbara E. Ports yes. from Baltimore, Maryland. Baltimore, Maryland. Uh-huh. Tell me, how long you've been in Southern California, Miss Ports? Oh, I just landed there Tuesday morning. You got here Tuesday morning. Did you fly out? I did. You did? Yes, sir. And so how old are you, Miss Ports? You mind saying? <laughs> Almost 82. Almost 82. And you flew. Is that your first flight? My first flight. Oh, gee. It was thrilling, wasn't it? It was. Uh-huh. I enjoyed it every bit. Did you? Uh-huh. You didn't get air sick or anything? No, indeed. No. I was ready for my dinner and my breakfast. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> 82, and she flies all the way from Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Did you ever dream that you might fly across country, Miss Ports? No, I never gave it a thought till the late years that ever I would get in a plane or ever, ever such a thing would be on Earth. Yeah. <laughs> years back yeah. in my early days. Well, look at radio. Now you're t- now you're oh, talking across country. Oh, I say I. You're radio well, star I'm now. I'm supposed to say hello to 
What? I was supposed to say hello to my daughter in Baltimore. Hello, Hester. No, no, no. You mustn't do that now. <laughs> now, you know better than that, don't you? Oh, I got, I got hundreds of huh? listening for me to say this, but I didn't expect to come here quite so soon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just landed it. Now, you know, you know that was against the law, don't you? Radio law. Uh, well, that might be, but I have to say it. You had to say it. <laughs> just for that, you won't get an Millions of American servicemen and women will be celebrating this holiday as civilians anyway. for the first time in five years. Many more are still serving overseas and finding their way back to the U.S. All right, let's meet a couple of our boys. Come on, come on. Waterloo, Ontario. Uh, Able Seaman Earl Thank you. Very Pennsylvania, Seaman First Class, Jack Farm. Okay. of Michigan, Lieutenant Florence S. Hill. Hmm? The war is finally over. Cameron in Maryland, Private First Class Elizabeth Boone. Thank you, buddy. <laughs> Hagerstown, Maryland, Private Lucille Cox. Hagerstown, Maryland. I've been there many times. Christmas and Hanukkah are here again. Detroit, Michigan, Private William Hayes. Austin, Texas, BFC, Powell Austin, Texas, BFC, Charles W. Ray. Hershey, Pennsylvania, Staff Sergeant Donald B. Wood. Murray, Minnesota, William Brown, BFC. Toledo, Ohio, Seaman First Class, Jack Kelman. Punkhannock, Pennsylvania, Seaman First Class, Clifford S. White. Lowell Gardner, Napanee, Indiana, Topheman, Second Class. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 86. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we explore what was on the air in the United States of America during December of 1945. The 1945 holiday season was the first since 1928 that America wasn't living in a depression or fighting a world war. Soldiers were coming home. The country was already experiencing a massive housing shortage, and a population boom would soon begin. The U.S. war debt was $240 billion. And yet, as America celebrated, the greatest number of hometown heroes descended upon the nation's air and sea ports of call, and still more remained in service hospitals across the globe. Radio 2 was in transition. Three major networks had become four. NBC's Blue Network was now the American Broadcasting Company. Television was also here to stay, as RCA's NBT was live, while RCA's head, David Sarnoff, battled with Edwin Howard Armstrong over FM, and CBS's head, William S. Paley, returned from war with an incredibly open mind for programming. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this show everywhere you get a podcast and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's theme song is K-Star's version of The Man with the Bag, written by Irving Taylor, Dudley Brooks, and Hal Stanley. If you're on Facebook, join our Facebook group to keep in touch with news, like our just-announced new audio drama series called Burning Gotham, which will take place in 1835 New York City, debut next spring. The teaser trailer is available in this show feed or at thewallbreakers.com. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. Better watch out now. A captain in the signal corps I'd come back from Germany. He'd spent some time over there after the war, a year or two. 
I don't know whether he brought a prototype of a tape machine or whether he just brought back the knowledge of how to put one together. But anyhow, he built one and showed it to us, and it was practical, and it seemed to me we could get the same result as a live show, taping in front of an audience, and still have an opportunity to edit or delete or interpolate anything that we uh, wanted to do after the show was finished, although lots of times there was no necessity to uh, touch the show at all. And again, you could tape it any day you wanted. You could tape it two or three days in a row if you wanted, if uh, it appeared that you were going to want three or four weeks off for a trip. It seemed to me an ideal thing, but uh, the networks didn't want it, didn't like it. They felt it would break up the networks or something, and the trade papers uh, opposed it, the taping. Uh, I think I finally uh, got a little petulant about it, or adamant. I said, well, it's going to be that way, or get a new boy or something. In the fall of 1945, as the nation transitioned to peacetime, over 230 sponsored programs were rated in the primetime Hooper ratings, an all-time high between 6 and 11 p.m. Total annual radio revenue had doubled since 1941, and the network show sponsorship was approaching $200 million. You just heard Bing Crosby. In December of 1945, he was on strike. He walked away from his contract with Kraft Foods for their NBC Music Hall when the network and sponsor refused to allow Bing to pre-record his program. The mutual broadcasting system had no quarrels with pre-recorded programs, and it was still unclear whether the new American Broadcasting Company would support long-term prime-time transcription. But NBC and CBS forbade the pre-recording of major network shows. This helped create three distinct production hubs and groups of radio actors located in New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. From New York, Pillsbury's Best Enriched Flour brings you Grand Central Station. If you were tuning your dial in New York City at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Saturday, December 1st, 1945, you would have heard CBS's broadcast of their anthology series, Grand Central Station, on WABC 880 AM. Individual affiliate stations, like WABC in New York, could belong to one of the larger networks. WABC was a member of the Columbia Broadcasting System. As of December of 1945, networks were no longer allowed to operate more than one station within a major city. That's part of the reason why NBC had to sell its Blue Network, which became the American Broadcasting Company. A live, coast-to-coast -coast program usually meant that a show aired live on all affiliates of that network at the same time. In December of 1945, there were four major coast-to-coast -coast radio networks, NBC, CBS, ABC, and the Mutual Broadcasting System. First airing in October of 1937, Grand Central Station was sponsored at various times by Listerine, Pillsbury, Tony Home Permanent, Cream of Wheat, and Campbell's Soups. 
Grand Central Station was on live, coast to coast, on every CBS affiliate. Like at 10 a.m. on CBS Los Angeles' KNX, and 12 p.m. on Chicago's WBBM. This episode is entitled, Larkspur to Feed the Soul. It's a melodrama about the merging lives of aspiring New York City actors and actresses. Casting a new play. And near the head of the line, two pretty girls are talking. Well, Julia, how much longer do you think we'll have to stand outside this cage door before the great Mr. Ashton will see us? Oh, we'll get there. Why, we've moved up almost three feet in less than half an hour. Why do they do this, Just to weed out the weaklings, Ellie. Takes a lot of stamina to become an actor. Well, I've never felt so weeded out in all my life. I ought to give up and go back to Cleveland. Oh, come on, Ellie. Chin up. That isn't like you. But I've got to be fair to David. He generously gave me a year to make good. Yeah. He's nice. Mm. I guess I should have married him last year. But Julia just had to have my chance at the fifth. Oh, sure. You got that driving little fire away down inside you that you can act. And nothing will put it out until you try. I, I don't know. Sometimes I think maybe I'm just not an actor. But in the old country, my mother used to... Excuse me. Many episodes were produced by Hyman Brown. What's your name, Hanson? As luck would have it, I created Grand Central Station. Let's say the signature with the train coming in. That's all out of my head because the trains that come into Grand Central Station are diesels and you wouldn't know that you were coming in on a train. It had no excitement. So I said, what do I care? The Santa Fe is going to come into Grand Central. And every week we got hundreds of letters. Grand Central is not. You're doing a train that would never go under Park Avenue, all that malarkey. But I did for about eight, nine years. I stayed with Grand Central about three years, four years. I couldn't take the agency executive, and I got out of it. Look here yourself, Mr. Ashton. You may be a wonderful director, as they say you are, but you are not a human being. You do not have the simple human instinct of kindness anywhere in you. And as for you discovering talent, you couldn't even recognize an actress unless you brought Gaffey David from other Broadway producers. Goodbye. In a few moments, we'll return to Pillsbury's Grand Central Station drop. Beginning at 1.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, all NBC stations, like WEAF in New York, WMAQ in Chicago, and KFI in Los Angeles. Broadcast the Army-Navy game from Philadelphia's Municipal Stadium. There were actually many heralded football games taking place that Saturday, December 1st, 1945. At 1.15 p.m. Eastern Time, Mutual's flagship affiliate, WOR, broadcast Yale versus Harvard. And at 2.45, CBS broadcast Notre Dame versus Great Lakes out of its WABC station in New York. In 1945, Army football was ranked number one in the nation. Navy was ranked number two. Some consider the 1945 Army squad 
to be the greatest amateur football team in history. It featured the three-time All-American running back tandem, Doc Blanchard and Glenn Davis. 102,000 were in attendance for this game in Philadelphia, including President Harry Truman. The game was also broadcast on RCA's WNBT television station. Navy put up the biggest fight of any opponent that season, battling well for the final three quarters. But Army jumped out to an early 20-0 lead and won 32-13. In nine games that season, the undefeated 1945 Army squad outscored their opponents 412-46. It had been a decidedly good year for the United States Armed Forces. Johnny was uh, just naturally funny, you know. He thought funny. Then John Dietz, who was our uh, director on Casey Crime Photography, he was tired of the same stick. He was a little bit pixelated, too, you know. Following Grand Central Station on CBS at 1.30 was a light-hearted mystery detective series directed by John Dietz called Casey, Crime Photographer. It starred New York radio actor Stats Cotsworth, Casey was a newspaper photographer, which made for a decidedly unique kind of gumshoe. Just bring up some lemons. Well, hurry up. Come I'm on. I'm coming, I'm coming. Hello? Blue Nose Cafe, Ethelbert speaking. Yeah, he's here. What? For you, Casey, your city desk. Uh -oh. Hello, Bert. Yeah. Yeah, Miss Williams is here with me right now. Okay, Bert. Right? We'll be right over. Yeah, so long. Now what, Casey? An assignment for you? A murder, maybe? All right, you are, Ethelbert. Come on, Annie. Yeah, but who, uh, where... We'll give you the details when we get back. Yeah. So long, pal. Sports and news and music filled the airwaves that afternoon. And the light dramatic fair picked up again in the evening, when at 6.30 Central Time, live from Chicago, the first nighter program, starring Barbara Luddy and Olin Soule, went on all CBS networks, coast to coast. Barbara, were you with the first Niner program when it first went on the air? No, June Meredith was. Uh huh. June Meredith and Jack. What? Doty well, did. Jack Doty did it for a very short time, and but then yeah, then, and then Don Amici. And then, the then Betty Lou Gerson replaced June mm -hmm. Meredith. And they came out here when Don got his Fox contract. They when he became Alexander Graham Bell. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And they auditioned, First Nighter auditioned every ingenue in town to do second business for the six weeks they were going to be here. Betty Lou Gerson was mm -hmm. the leading lady. And uh, I got it. I did second business with him for six weeks. And then Betty Lou went back to Chicago for the summer hiatus. And she got off the train and married Joe Ainley the very day that she got back there. So, since she had just gotten married when the, when they went back on the air in September, she didn't want to come out here and leave him. And so they got me. So I did it with Donna Meacher for nine months. We went back to Chicago. And who turned out to be our director but Joe Ainley, the man she'd given up the show for. That's right. Les Tremaine and I did it for about six years. And then Olin and I did it for about 11. I know, so is everyone in Bethlehem. But the Roman emperor cares nothing about that. This is a Roman census. I'm sorry. 
I could have been through the enrollment by now if you Jews were not so garrulous. Well, you started, it was around 1936, 30, wasn't it? 36, 36 yeah. yeah. 36, September of 36. Uh -huh. And I went to Chicago and uh, I got there the 1st of June in 37. I was there until mm -hmm. June of 46. I rounded my nine years off nicely. Yeah. Olin, when did you come in with the first nighter scene? In 43, really, just 10 years, I guess, because we came out here uh, in 47 and went off there in 53. That's right. So I did it the last 10 years it was on. I had the pleasure of being with Barbara longer than any of the other leading men. <laughs> we have no place to sleep. There was no room at the inn. Can you help me? Uh, the town is filled with those who return for the enrollment. I can do nothing. Oh, wait. Do you see that man talking with the soldier at the roadside? That Chicago had a habit of being a temporary stop for radio actors and actresses. New York was radio's first main production hub. When production needed to expand, it first did so in the 1930s to Chicago, and then to San Francisco, until eventually Los Angeles. Famed comedian Frank Nelson remembered the early days of Southern California radio in the mid-1930s. But anyway, I did various things around town here. Uh, one that was very popular uh, local show was The Witch's Tales. Paula Winslow, who was another gal from out mm -hmm. here, and I did the leads in those for, oh, about two years. That was the most envied show in town at that time. Now, this was before there was any transcontinental shows out of here. Mm -hmm. Finally, I had worked for John Swallow at KFAC KFVD as an announcer, and John became the first head of NBC out here. And NBC at that time was just an office on the RKO lot, on the back lot. And we worked on sound stages initially, and then they built some sound stages strictly for radio uh, right at the end of the RKO lot. That was the beginning, and they had a show out of here called the Hollywood on the Air show, which was the RKO show. First show out of Hollywood that was transcontinental, but it was not sponsored, except that RKO really, it was their sponsorship in effect. I used to do everything on that. I was the announcer. I filled in as a actor and then if somebody didn't show up I played that part too did that for about oh I guess about a year and a half and then the first transcontinental show that was sponsored out of here was an original Marx Brothers show with Groucho and Chico just the two of them in it by 1945 Hollywood had emerged as the largest center for dramatic radio production directors like William Spear and Norman Corwin comedians like Jack Benny and Jim and Marion Jordan and musicians like Rudy Valley were all based in L.A. Hollywood had its own unique circle of radio voice actors and actresses, like Hans Conried, Joseph Kearns, Jeanette Nolan, Jeff Chandler, Gloria Blondell, John McIntyre, Elliot and Kathy Lewis, Lawrence Dobkin, Harley Bear, Shirley Mitchell, and Lorraine Tuttle. You see, I always felt that we had to work with an all-physical person. We always worked from the, the full person, at least I did, and I know that all of us tried to work that way because that's the only honest way to do it. You have, you have to have a person who lives and breathes and walks and is alive rather than just turning on a voice because you could conjure up, if you really had, through imagination, anything that you wanted to be. That's why I loved it, too, because I could play opposite Jimmy Stewart or Frederick March or Cary Grant or Gary Cooper or Leslie Howard and on the air, I could be the most glamorous, gorgeous, tall, black-haired female you've ever seen in your life. Whatever I wished to be, I could be with my voice. That was the thrilling part to me. The best radio actors and actresses got most of the work, often doubling and tripling roles each day. 
That was true, whether you worked in New York, Chicago, or Los Angeles. They were fun days, those early days. I think radio offered so much more to an actor than television does because you could do anything that your voice would allow you to do. Uh, you weren't trapped by what you looked like, how tall you were, how old you were, or how fat you were, or anything else. You could just do anything that your voice would allow. And that let us play a great deal of varied types characters. And you didn't need any time for makeup and no. costumes Oh, that and was all nice. That, that was yeah. nice. And you read it, too. Yeah. <laughs> Although that wasn't as easy as we make it sound now. Yeah. Uh, lots of times we look back and we say, oh, boy, what a soft touch that was, how easy it was. But it wasn't easy. It truly wasn't. You had to come into a studio, and you had to create a character in a very brief period of time. And it had to be believable, at least. Mm -hmm. All those characters weren't the greatest in the world, but it kept you on your toes and it kept you working hard. We did things, uh, oh, funny things that you'd do. I remember I had a show at NBC, which is really one long block from CBS. I had it at the last studio in the hall, that is the closest studio to the CBS studios, and I would conclude that show, sign that show off, and then run out the side door. I'd have a page there. He'd have the door up, and I'd run out the side door, tear across the <laughs> Palladium lot, and slide through Studio A. They had a big double doors there, and they'd have that open for me, and I'd slide through to the middle of the stage and take one deep breath and say, ladies and gentlemen, from Hollywood, and open the next show. And I'll tell you, some days I thought I'll never get the words out. <laughs> you could say that, thanks in part to men and women like Frank Nelson. Los Angeles' radio industry, in the preceding 10 years before 1945, had come on like gangbusters. And now, in cooperation with police and federal law enforcement department throughout the United States, the only national program that brings you authentic police case histories. Gangbusters! I came back to New York, and uh, radio was really in its booming heyday at that point. Gangbusters was a show that for some reason I'd always listened to back in Cleveland and wanted very badly to do. But how do you do this? How do you get started? You know, I didn't know anybody. In no, the, uh, that's right. I joined a, a telephone answering service and they gave me a sheet listing the advertising agencies that produced the various dramatic programs. And so you would, from talking to other actors, you know, that you would meet on the third floor of NBC. Incidentally, you know, that, nothing like that exists anymore. In the old days, the third floor at NBC was where everybody congregated. There were Colby's, which is non-existent now. Colby's was the restaurant at CBS, 485 Madison Avenue. So if you wanted to meet any of your friends or just find out what was going on, you just ended up on the third floor of NBC over at Colby's. And you kind of got the word there. It was all passed on. Everybody congregated there and it was social. And also, there was a good chance to nab a director as he walked through the, you know, from sure. one studio to another because the third floor was where a great many of the dramatic shows came from, from the studios on the third floor. Well, I found out that the way you have to do this is you have to go around and, and get appointments for auditions at these various advertising agencies. They were not clamoring for Mandel Kramer at that point. Harry Frazee was the director at that point. He was the son of the Harry Frazee, who uh, many years ago owned the Boston Red Sox. I came up to uh, Phillips H. Lloyd's office. First time I ever set foot in that office, not the last, I'm happy to say, because ultimately I was under f contract to Phil Lord for many, many years on Counterspy. The girl at the desk, when I asked for Mr. Frazee, 
It's amazing, you know, the naivete, fresh out of Cleveland. How do you get to people? How do you get a job, you know? How do you do this? And she said, oh, Mr. Frazee is, isn't here now. He's holding auditions uh, at CBS. I said, oh, what floor is he on? Or what studio I recall? And she told me. And so I hot-footed it across the street to 485. And I took the elevator up, and there were a whole group of actors sitting around waiting to be auditioned. And there was a gal sitting there with a list of names. And I walked over to her, and she said, can I help you? And I said, well, they told me that the auditions were being held here for gangbusters. And she said, yes, that's right, what's your name? Actually, I crashed the audition, but it wasn't really a lie, because I didn't say that I, had, that I was supposed to be on it. She just surmised that. Right. They handed me a script, and I was terrified. But I got the part. My first network broadcast was a lead on gangbusters coming out of New York. After Northern Lights in Cleveland, Ohio, I can't tell you how terrified I was. Really. But that's how it started. That's how it started. Open a cash register. You're joking. Open the cash register. But, but you've been sitting at the bar drinking for an hour. You're a friend. You're joking. I'm late for an appointment. Open that cash register. All the money. This is all of it. Turn your back and close the register. Why should I close it? Turn your back and close the register. If anyone moves, I'll kill them, too. I'm late for a dinner appointment. So long, folks. If you were tuned in to NBC's flagship affiliate, WEAF in New York at 9 p.m. on the evening of Saturday, December 1st, you would have heard National Barn Dance. Running opposite on the American Broadcasting Company's WJZ was the dramatic crime anthology Gangbusters, which Mandel Kramer was often featured on. It was the first show to operate in conjunction with the FBI, as creator Phillips H. Lord had arranged a special cooperation with J. Edgar Hoover to dramatize closed cases. You like that, huh? In December of 1945, Gangbusters wasn't owned live coast to coast. Only a select number of shows, usually the largest and most prestigious, were heard simultaneously by the entire nation. You heard Mandel Kramer just a moment ago. New York Dramatic Radio 2 had its own unique voices, with men and women like Kramer, Louise Fitch, Art Carney, Jackson Beck, Santos Ortega, Robert Dryden, Burgess Meredith, Fran Carlin, Larry Haynes, Ed Bagley, Alice Reinhardt, Stats Cotsworth, and Jan Minor. When I arrived, all of the WTIC people had started mm -hmm. and were working in New York and introduced me to different people and got me at least into some of the auditions. So each one of them really had something to do to help me get going in New York and to tell me what to do. You know, it's, it's not, you just don't know where to go or what to do unless someone tells you. Jan Minor was very active in both daytime and evening programs. In 1945, one of her roles was as the female lead opposite of Richard Colmer in the syndicated Boston Blackie. Those men were brilliant. You know, they really did some fantastic work. But this particular day on Boston Blackie, the um, sound man, his elbow hit one of the recordings when he was doing something else on one side of the turntable. His elbow hit, and then suddenly there was this tremendous automobile crash as Dick Colmar and I were Blackie and Mary were riding along in their car talking about, well, we'll go and see so-and-so and just casual conversation. It was this terrible accident. 
and Dick kept talking casually along, and I kind of kicked him, and I started to cry, and then we both went, oh, 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 and we were carrying on like, oh, 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 Blackie, oh, and he'd say, what's the matter, Mary, what's the matter, Mary, and the organ was coming in. We had about two or three minutes of reaction to this terrible sound effect because you couldn't avoid it. It's like falling into the orchestra pit and not no. expecting the orchestra people or anyone in the house did, to did know you're falling in. Did he finally catch on? Oh, yes, yes, he did. And we did a whole series of ad-libs and, and the announcer had to say, tune in next week and see what's happened to Mary in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a terrible mistake. And we didn't have tape and recordings, you know. We, it was a live show. You just had to work you your way out of it. You had to find a way to do it. One Saturday evening show that did run coast-to-coast was the Judy Canova Show. Broadcast Saturdays at 7 p.m. Pacific Time from NBC Hollywood. Attention, attention please. The Pine Valley Express is arriving on track 5 at 5 o'clock. The Phoenix Flyer is leaving on track 5 at 5 o'clock. Golly, both trains on the same track. Won't there be a collision? Yes, isn't it the silliest way to run a railroad? Program featured, famed voice actor, Mel Blanc. You were on many, many other radio shows. I'll never forget Saturday Nights and Judy Canova. Yeah. And that was Pedro. See, that was Pedro. Pardon me for talking in your face, Senorita. <laughs> and I did that along with uh, many other voices with her. Uh, one was this spraying thing that I did for Sylvester later in morning mm. cartoons. If one spoke of a spray, you know, got everybody sopping wet. My glasses are all <laughs> sprayed now, too. <laughs> and I did that with Al Jolson, also. In December of 1945, Mel Blanc was a very busy man. Hey, Mr. Benny, I'm ready now. Would you like a close shave or a light shave? What's the difference? With a light shave, I take one step back. <laughs> oh, for heaven's sake, just shave me and get it over with. Oh, what's that now? Come in. Hi, Benny. Hello, hello, hello. Long time no see. Oh, hello, Bradley. Fine press agent you are. What's the matter? What's wrong? What's bothering you? What's bothering me? Look, I had a dream that I won $600,000 at the racetrack, and you and your publicity made everybody believe it was true. Yes, yes. And then what happened? I get robbed of $10,000. The same man comes back and beats me up. Yeah, but Benny, I... And then you, you put a detective on the case who doesn't know Greenberg from third base. <laughs> Why shouldn't I be mad? <laughs> What are you laughing at? Ah, the whole thing was a frame-up. I hired a man who robbed you of that $10,000 so it hit the newspapers, and you'd get a lot of publicity. Publicity? You mean that... I certainly, Benny. That crook was just an actor, and I gave him 200 bucks to rob you. Yeah, but how about him coming back and beating me up? And don't worry about it, Benny. He threw that in for nothing. <laughs> All right, Steve. Stop being funny and give me my $10,000. Not so fast. I got another great idea. Steve, I've had enough of your crazy ideas. Now, give me my money. Now, wait a minute, Benny. This idea's sensation. It'll sweep the country. Nothing like it has ever been done before. Now, Steve, just a minute. I've got an idea for a contest. And we'll give away your $10,000 as prizes. You're going to give away my $10,000? Put down that razor, Benny, and listen to me. <laughs> all right, all right, but talk fast. I can't tell you all about this contest till next week. I've got to get all the details wiped out. But believe me, Benny, it'll be the most sensational thing you ever heard of. This will be the best way I've ever spent your money. But Steve, tell him, Benny, so long. I'll see you next Sunday. Hmm. I never saw such a guy. What kind of a contest can that be where I'll have to give away prizes that'll cost me $10,000? Well, I'm not going to worry about it. She loves me. She loves me not. 
She loves me. She loves me now. She loves me. Barbara, shave me. Don't pull them out. <laughs> okay, okay. That was the last one anyway. I wonder what Steve has in on his mind. What kind of a contest can it be? Oh, well, I'll find out next Sunday. Jack Benny's ratings had slipped 35% since 1941. His 10th place finish at the end of the 1944-45 season was the show's lowest ratings placement in a decade. Is it true that Jack Benny is going to be forced to give away $10,000 in prizes? Pick him up, Mary. Benny's Sunday show had never slipped below a 20-point rating, and the comedian wanted to keep it that way. In late November, Jack and his writers came up with an ingenious storyline to reverse the ratings trend. Word of the upcoming contest quickly spread. Anticipation would grow throughout the week. On time, we should mail them early. So let's all cooperate and mail Christmas packages now or by December 10th at the latest. Thank you. Jack, we'll be back in just a minute, but first here is my good friend, Effie Boone. to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure oil olive, beaten for the light, to cause the lamps to burn continually in the tabernacle of the congregation, and it shall be a statute forever in your generations. In October of 1944, in conjunction with the Jewish Theological Seminary, NBC began one of the longest-running religious programs in radio history. It was called The Eternal Light. The show dramatized incidents from the ancient Judaic past, interspersed with contemporary works like the Diary of Anne Frank. Many top New York radio performers appeared. Hanukkah had begun on the evening of November 29th in 1945. This episode called Maccabees tells Hanukkah's origin story. It was broadcast on Sunday, December 2nd at 12 p.m. from WEAF in New York. Are celebrating at this moment the third day of the Feast of Lights, Hanukkah. Our story today tells of the origins of this festival in the historic War of the Maccabees during the second century before the Common Era. We present Morton Wishengrad's The Maccabees, featuring Alexander Scooby as Maccabeus. Religious programming was all over the dial on Sundays from early in the morning through the afternoon. Concert music, too, had a strong place on Sunday afternoons. But the edge of night belonged to one show. Once again, the Mutual Network brings you the thrilling adventures of the Shadow, the hard and relentless fight of one man against the forces of evil. 
These dramatizations are designed to demonstrate forcibly to old and young alike that crime does not pay. The 1945-46 season of The Shadow starred Brett Morrison and Leslie Woods as Lamont Cranston and Margot Lane. The Shadow ran live coast to coast out of Mutual Broadcasting's flagship WOR New York. It was followed at the bottom of the hour by another whodunit, Nick Carter, master detective. Mandel Kramer was often on both shows. Well, listen, you may have been told this because you've had a lot of radio people on before. I don't know, does the name Chick Vincent mean anything to you? No. Chick was a director of radio and producer of radio programs in the early days. I haven't seen Chick in a long time. I know he's still active. And Chick used to direct out on the floor, right there with the mm -hmm. actors. He would mm -hmm. wear cans and work right on the floor. And I've forgotten whether it was uh, Nick Carter or whatever... whatever who done it? It was. At one point, the gunfight is supposed to ensue, or the guy is supposed to come up and pull the trigger, and the sound effects man pull the trigger. Nothing happened, and Chick just said, "Bang!" <laughs> <laughs> True story. Oh. True story. <laughs> His instincts just huh? took over. He just That's he couldn't, yeah. couldn't allow that one to go oh, bust. Sunday evenings belong to comedy. CBS kicked the programming off with the adventures of Ozzie and Harriet Nelson at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. But in December of 1945, it was still NBC that dominated the Sunday primetime ratings, with the three highest-rated shows. Hi, everybody. Hello, everybody. Hello, hello, hello. It's me, Bradley. Steve Bradley. Well, Steve, it's about time you got here. The Rate Gildersleeve aired on NBC at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, followed by the Jack Benny program. Then the Fitch Bandwagon. Then the Charlie McCarthy Show. And then Fred Allen. Sunday, December 2nd, is Jack Benny's big contest announcement. Go ahead, Steve. All right, listen, Benny, and listen carefully. Yes, yes, what's the contest? I'm coming to that. Now, for years, programs have been having contests. They ask the listeners to write letters on why I like this, why I like that, why I like so-and-so, why I like such-and-such. -such. People are tired of that stuff. I got something brand new, something that people will enjoy. All right, what is it? We're going to ask people all over this country to write in letters in 25 words or less. Yes? Telling us... Why they can't stand Jack Benny. <laughs> what? Steve. Steve, would you mind repeating that? Gladly. We're going to ask people to write in letters finishing this simple sentence. I can't stand Jack Benny because... <laughs> Steve. Steve, look at me. Look at me! Have you lost your mind? Have you gone crazy asking people to do that? Why, people like me. They love me. Now, uh, wait a minute, Betty, wait a minute. What? How many people listen to you every Sunday? Well, about... about 30 million. And how many people are there in the United States? Well, about a... a hundred and thirty million. There you are. That means that a hundred million people don't like you. <laughs> What? A hundred million people don't like me. And that's only in this country. <laughs> but, Steve. Steve, you mean to say that a, a hundred million people don't like me? A hundred million and one. <laughs> huh? Don't let this smile fool you. Slav. How do you spell fool? Sit down. Get your very this contest will sweep the nation. But, Steve. Gee, I don't mind if people write in letters why they like Jack Benny, but you've got that awful phrase in there, I can't stand Jack Benny. I mean, 
Can't stand is too hard. Hey, Jackson, how about despise? You stay out. <laughs> Mary. Mary, you talk to Steve, will you? Tell him how crazy this whole idea is. I... I can't do a contest like that. Well, wait a minute, Jack. Maybe it's not so bad. At least it's different. But, Mary, all those people saying they can't stand me. Well, look at Fred Allen. He's been saying that for years. <laughs> well, he knows me. I mean... <laughs> I mean, Allen, he should know better. But, Jackson, there are a lot of other people that feel like Fred Allen does. Certainly. Now, this will give them a chance to put down on paper what they've been thinking for 14 years. <laughs> and for that? For that, I should give away $10,000? I've got an old bridge lamp I'm not using. I mean, wouldn't that be... No, no, Benny, it's got to be $10,000, and what's more, it's going to be in victory bonds. Oh. Well, I, I, I like the idea of victory bonds, but... Oh, Mary, I can't go through with a thing like this. Why not, Jack? I think it's a wonderful idea. Me too, Jack. I like it very much. I love it, but it's too easy. <laughs> I, I don't know what to do. I mean, it, it, I mean, it's so horrible. I mean, Steve, give me the details again, will you? All right, listen. People write in letters. I can't stand Jack Benny because... In 25 words or less. Do you think they can get it all in in 25 words? <laughs> Yeah. All right, then I'll write 50 words. 50 words? Well, that lets me out. <laughs> I don't know. This, this sounds so ridiculous. $10,000 for writing a letter. I can't stand Jack Benny because... Jack, put down that pencil. You can't be in it. <laughs> Can't they write it in on dollar bills or something? <laughs> well, if I'm going to give away victory bonds, I've got as much right to try and win as anybody else. Anyway, I'm not going through it. Oh, yes, you are. Go ahead, Wilson. Read that announcement I gave you. But, Steve, see, let's talk it over a it's little more. too late for that. Go ahead, Wilson. Read it. Oh. Okay. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this contest is actually taking place and starts right now. But, Steve... Now, listen look... closely. Here are the details. To enter this contest, all you have to do is write a letter completing this sentence in 50 words or less. I can't stand Jack Benny because... But, Don... $10,000 in victory bonds will be awarded for the letters containing the best stated and most convincing reasons. Mary, do something, will you? Quiet, Jack. I'm taking this down. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. The first prize will be $2,500 in victory bonds. The second prize, $1,500 in victory bonds. The third prize, a $1,000 victory bond. Look. And there are 50 additional prizes of $100 victory <laughs> bonds each. These are all par value bonds. They're worth their face value when you receive them. Look, how can I go through with this? I all mean... letters become the property of Jack Benny, and no letters will be returned. The decision of the judges will be final, and the supreme judge will be the Honorable Fred Allen. <laughs> And his decision will be final. Oh, no. No, I mean, how, how can they do this to me? I'm really a nice guy. I grow flowers. I, I, I pat little kids on the head. I give milk to cats. 
How can they do this to me? Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this contest is open to everybody except the employees of the American Tobacco Company, its agents, the National Broadcasting Company, and Jack Benny's relatives. <laughs> My father will kill me. This is awful. I mean, I... All you have to do is complete this sentence in 50 words or less. I can't stand Jack Benny because... Oh, my God. Then mail your letter to the Jack Benny Contest, Hollywood 28, California. Remember, the Jack Benny Contest, Hollywood 28, California. This contest is subject to all federal and state laws and regulations. The termination date of the contest will be announced on a subsequent program. Oh, wait a minute, Don. Suppose there's a tie. Yes, Steve, suppose there's a tie. That's impossible, Benny. People can't stand you for different reasons. I know. In case of a tie, duplicate prizes will be awarded. Duplicate prizes? <laughs> Mary, da- Phil, say something. Okay, play, boys. I ought to have my head examined. How do you spell examine? Oh, sit down! <laughs> Mary, no! God, let Let go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, Twelve Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. I'll be home for Christmas You can plan on me Say, have you had trouble getting a telephone? Hmm? You know, there are hundreds of thousands of families and businessmen trying to get a telephone. And they have to wait because there's such shortage of uh, instruments and such shortage of material and wire and shortage of skilled personnel. It's hard to get a telephone these days. Well, the trouble is, perhaps, if you want a telephone, you've asked the telephone company, and you're waiting for it and can't get it, maybe it's because you don't belong to the right family. You're not engaged in gambling. No member of your family has committed murder. You haven't sufficiently abused the police commissioner and the mayor. So if you want a telephone, get some uh, member of your family to commit murder, open a gambling place, abuse the police commissioner, and then you'll get a telephone. I suppose you read... On Monday, December 3rd, 1945, the New York Times reported that New York City's soon-to-be ex-mayor Fiorello LaGuardia would be bringing his brand of radio commentary from 
WNYC to the American Broadcasting Company on January 6th, 1946. The show would be broadcast from WJZ Studios and air at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Back in the infantry again, and at Salina, Kansas, of all places, and I got orders to come to Hollywood. Are you ready for this? For the Armed Forces Radio Service. It was the talk of the, the whole division. <laughs> this dumb fool is going to Hollywood. And what was it like in the Armed Forces? This was a pioneering effort in those days. Uh, the Armed Forces Radio Service? Armed, yes, that part of your career, yes. Well, actually, the they, didn't, the... they didn't really know what to do with people like myself. Actually, I was not a writer. Per se, I was not a producer, I was not a director. So Elliot Lewis and myself and Alan Hewitt and a couple of other people were put in charge of uh, Elliot and I originally. We recorded regular commercial programs off the air, and then we had to reassemble them because of censorship reasons, you know, in wartime, where certain things were verboten. And we reproduced them, as a matter of fact. That was our job. We, it was a separate department. We turned on an awful lot of programs a week. And how were these programs used? Were they... Oh, we, on we a, had stations all over wherever American mm-hmm. troops were, in Alaska, Far East, uh, you know, in China, whenever, whenever when we can get into China, and, uh, and of course, the Western Pacific, New Guinea, and whatever. You just can't say no. Well, no. Howard Duff along with Elliot Lewis, had spent much of his time during the war helping to launch the Armed Forces Radio Service. A small-time actor before the war, the 32-year-old was seven months away from a career-defining role as Sam Spade when he appeared on the Cavalcade of America on December 3rd, 1945. Morning, dear. Oh, flowers. Thank you, darling. And uh, a can of tobacco for your father. Huh? Have you uh, softened him up, darling? <laughs> well, I... In 1945, Cavalcade was in the midst of a 13-year primetime run on NBC, sponsored by DuPont, the program dramatized history and historical fiction, focusing intensely on the war at home and abroad. Good afternoon, Mr. Sweeney. This episode pits a disapproving retired Navy seaman, played by Thomas Mitchell, against Duff's character, a top-secret government engineer, in Duff's quest for the seaman's daughter's hand in marriage. The old-timer doesn't trust him and thinks him a coward because he feels Duff should be an enlisted man. In the end, it's the engineer's science that saves the old man's life, proving that there is more than one way to win the war. Running opposite of Cavalcade was Lum and Abner on WJZ and Bulldog Drummond on WOR. Now here is Gain Whitman. There are wild birds in our skies and wild game in our forests, thanks to the fact that America has learned the wisdom of conservation. Practical programs of restoration are so widely carried out and so constantly improved that a plentiful supply of game seems assured. A copy of the interesting little Remington book, How to Dress, Ship, and Cook Wild Game, may be had by writing to the DuPont Company. Just enclose a dime and send your name and address to radio section, DuPont Company, Wilmington, Delaware. Good night, and good hunting. Treat presents Hedda Hopper's Hollywood. Treat is the meat folks love to eat. Slice it cold right from the tin. Fry it, broil it, bake it in the loaf. Treat is the meat you just can't beat. 
opposite the Cavalcade of America between 8.15 and 8.30 from ABC's WJZ was the Head Hopper Show. She was born Elda Furry on June 2, 1890. By the mid-1940s, Hedda was a noted gossip columnist, self-proclaimed femcee, and wearer of exotic hats. She was also a staunch political conservative who drew praise from FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. And her feuds with Hollywood columnists and female peers, Luella Parsons and Elsa Maxwell, were legendary. Lunching with Elsa Maxwell, as I did yesterday, was not only a mental, but a physical hazard. First, I couldn't get a word in edgewise. Then she squeezed half a lemon into a glass of water I forgot to duck and got it smack in the eye. And as one of her guests said, isn't Elsa wonderful? If she can't kill off a competitor any other way, she blinds them. Broadcast coast to coast from Hollywood at 7 p.m. Pacific time was the CBS drama anthology, The Screen Guild Theater, sponsored by Lady Esther Cosmetics. Hello? Hello, Francie, is that you? Oh, Peter, darling, I'm so glad you called. What's Keith doing? Oh, Keith's gone out. He, he said he had to do some... No, wait a minute, here he is now. Why, Keith! Oh, you're wonderful! Hey. Hey, How uh... thoughtful can you be? Oh, hey, uh... beautiful. Look, uh, say, Keith, what's going on darling. there? Darling, oh, Peter, darling, Keith just brought us a wedding cake, and it's beautiful. Oh, well, don't cut it until I get over there, will you? <laughs> The Screen Guild Theater offered condensed versions of Hollywood dramas, usually starring one of the major leads from the film. This episode, from December 3, 1945, is a version of the 1938 RKO romantic comedy film called Vivacious Lady. James Stewart reprised his screen role. The story begins when a normally calculated young botany professor named Peter Morgan Jr., played by Stewart, is sent by Peter Sr. to Manhattan to retrieve his playboy cousin Keith. There, Stuart meets a beautiful nightclub singer named Francie, and the pair instantly falls in love. Following a one-day courtship, the couple is married. Keith, Peter, and Francie return to the Morgan family home, where Peter teaches at the university run by his father. Mr. Morgan is known for being a proud, overbearing man, so Peter is afraid to tell him about the marriage. Two months prior, he'd been one of the 12 founders of the Air Force Association, Although the war was over, Stewart continued to play a role in the Army Air Force's Reserve and the new U.S. Air Force Reserve after the Independent Air Force founding in 1947. I'll carry you to your room. Hold tightly now. Oh, Mother, I'm sorry. Quiet! Don't you think you've done enough damage already? Well, that evolved through a whole series of events. We were doing a show... On WENR, we worked on farm programs, and we did a uh, couple of farm, rural people. Then we did another show called The Smith Family, in which other people were involved, and Marion did the Irish voice on that, which later became Molly. We ran into a man on the farm program called E.W. Rusk, and he uh, had known about a little store down in Columbia, Missouri, where an old guy that ran this store didn't have anything, and he had everything. But he had the, the knack of telling people that he was, if he didn't have it, he'd say, well, I'm smack out of that. Mm -hmm. I'll have it in the morning. So this man told us this story, and we thought this would be a good idea. So we put it together, made a deal with Don Quinn to write it. 
And in those days, if you didn't write your own material, you were no good. The idea that you hired a writer, you kept that quiet. You didn't let anybody, I suppose that's You didn't right, let anybody sure. know that, or you right. you'd be out of work quick. <laughs> so he started writing Smack Out, and then NBC bought this radio station. And we didn't want to go to NBC because we were playing theaters and doing pretty well. And the reason we did well was because our appearances were announced on the radio station, mm -hmm, and NBC sure. wouldn't allow that. So we went over across the river to a Columbia station, WMAQ in Chicago, started this show actually over there, and we were only there six months when that station was sold to NBC, so, <laughs> so then we had to go to NBC. That was 1931 that that mm -hmm. happened. This was still Smack Out, though. That was still Smack Out, mm -hmm. and we did that show for four years before anything happened. That would bring us up to about what, 1934? 1934. Mm -hmm. And we heard about the Johnson Company through an outside source. They were looking for something. They had listened to 20 radio shows. They wanted to hear us because Mrs. Lewis, who was a Johnson and married to Jack Lewis, who was the head of the advertising agency, mm -hmm. Needham Lewis and Brewery, she would listen to Smack Out for about six months. And she knew all about us, and she got her husband to listen. And he got interested, and he wanted to buy us, but they didn't want NBC to know that they wanted to buy us, you see? Yeah. Otherwise, whoop, goes the That's right, that goes, goes the, the price. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they heard all these shows, and we actually went over to another studio over in the other end of town and sneaked an audition for the Johnson Company with the old guy in the store, and we put the Molly voice, who was Marion's voice, Irish voice that she had been doing in the Smith family, Put them all together and did this audition, and Don wrote it, and they bought it. The Johnson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. Tuesday night's comedy lineup featured the three highest-rated shows on the air. Between 9 and 11 p.m. Eastern Time on Tuesdays, NBC ran Amos and Andy, Fibber McGee and Molly, The Bob Hope Show, and The Red Skelton Show, back-to-back. Bob Hope was radio's highest-rated comedian, scoring a 27.7 Hooper rating that season. Nice to be back, and the whole NBC staff turned out to welcome me back today. Everybody, everybody from the office boy down. And it was a wonderful reception. <laughs> it was a wonderful reception. The crowd went wild and actually threw themselves at my feet. I'm still trying to find out which one of them tied my shoelaces together. <laughs> And, of course, as soon as I stepped out of the car, I was mobbed by autograph hounds. You know what an autograph hound is. That's the guy that runs up, grabs you by the collar, shoves a leaky fountain pen under your nose, and says, hmm, up close you ain't so much. Fibber, McGee, and Molly came in at a 27.1, and the returning Red Skelton show was third, all but NBC. Lorene Tuttle was a frequent performer on the Skelton program. Well, what about the Red Skelton show? Now, you played juniors... When Mummy. Red was Junior, played Junior's mother. Mummy. Uh-huh. Mummy, always right. called not, Junior's not Mummy. Not Mamaw. Mamaw was no. Berna Felton. Yes, right. And you were Junior's Mummy. Uh -huh. and, uh, and I played Daisy June, his girlfriend. Uh -huh. That was Clem Cadiddlehopper's girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And I played Mrs. Willie Lump Lump. He was the drunk. I played a lot of other parts on the show. I have some of those tapes, and they're fun to listen to. Oh, the... I really think Red Skelton should get out a lot of his tapes and play them again, because I really think his show was always better on radio than it ever was on TV. Well, that's the old it's story funnier. of... To me, uh, it was funnier. story of the imagination again. Absolutely. From Hollywood, the Raleigh Cigarette Program, starring Red Skelton. With Gigi Pearson, Berna Felton, Pat McGee, and our tiny singer Anita Ellis, our guest Wonderful Smith, 
David Forrester and his orchestra, and yours truly, Rod O'Connor. Red Skelton's previous Raleigh cigarettes program had to come to an end after Skelton was drafted in March of 1944. He was eventually shipped overseas as a private, losing 18 months at the top of his career. He was discharged in September of 1945, and his Raleigh program re-debuted Tuesday, December 4th, 1945, from Hollywood. Really happy. <laughs> Thank you very much, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Say, Rod, did you hear me on Dinah Schroeder's program? Dinah was really swell to me. She gave me some bird's-eye frozen food, but I can't find any place to cook it. <laughs> well, Rad, don't tell me you haven't found a place to live yet. Well, I'm spending my time between the Beverly Wilshire Hotel and the Wilshire Palms. Really? Yeah, a nice vacant lot between the two. <laughs> I'm living in a tree now. <laughs> well, isn't it cold? Cool? It's freezing. Last night I opened my suitcase and my shorts were wearing my long underwear. <laughs> My clothes were frozen stiff. I fell out of the tree in the middle of the night and broke my pajamas. Why, <laughs> oh, you're kidding, Red. No, the other day you told me you'd found a room. Yeah, that's true. I was living the life of Raleigh. You mean Riley. Now, I know the side my sponsor's buttered on. <laughs> CBS countered NBC's programming Tuesday evenings with a healthy dose of melodrama and horror. Their evening slate from New York consisted of Big Town, Inner Sanctum Mysteries, This Is My Best, and finally, songstress Joe Stafford, who got her start on KHJ in Los Angeles. David Brookman mm-hmm. was the conductor. Remember him? He was a real hard conductor, but yeah, I learned a lot from him. That was Coast to Coast show. Yeah, that was a, the first big one. We had our own little 15-minute show on, I guess it was KHJ, when they were still downtown in Los Angeles. And we had our own 15-minute show three days a week. And I'll never forget, there was a whole big cattle call, as we called them, audition at KHJ. This man came out and says, is there anybody here, any act here that, that has their own accompaniment? And my sister Chris said, we do. Well, you know, I almost fainted because I was the piano player, and I had no idea of playing the piano uh, except for just to rehearse us. Well, we wound up with our own 15-minute show and me pounding away on the piano very badly, but... That was it. She fixed me. Hello, Lloydsy. Hello, Joyce. <laughs> you look lovely tonight. <laughs> and you look handsome tonight. Some people might think I'm being ignored, and they're right. <laughs> I'm sorry, Perry. Did you want to say something? Well, Joe, I was going to wish you luck. You know, Lloyd, starting next Tuesday, <laughs> Joe will be doing the Tuesday and Thursday shows. You mean you won't be around on Tuesday and Thursday, Perry? Lloyd, don't look so disappointed. <laughs> Joe, sing for your supper, club. I'm as restless as a willow in a windstorm. In 1945, Joe Stafford was enjoying one of her best years as a performer. She was a frequent guest on programs like the Kraft Music Hall and GI Journal. On Thursday, December 11, 1945, she'd begin a twice-per-week tenure as co-host of the Chesterfield Supper Club with Perry Como on NBC. The program would eventually make its way to television. 
after 11 p.m. each evening. Stations mostly broadcast news programs and late-night music. WEAF in New York went off the air at 1 a.m. WABC at 2. God give me strength to do this. These horses. Now here, here's the case on beneath us now. And there is the flag draped coffin resting on this black case on in a dull black. The horses with black blankets under their saddles, the horses on the right side, unmounted, the riders on the left. You'll see this in the pictorial news pictures, in the, in the, in the movie tone news, as I hope. And it's moving ever so slowly, ever so slowly as the crowd stands, the waves and wax and men in uniform along the streets that salute. And most generally, folks having as tough a time as I am trying to see it. It's Arthur Godfrey time. In New York, WABC signed on at 5 a.m. the morning of Wednesday, December 5th, 1945, with news. WEAF followed at 5.30 with recorded music, WOR at 5.45 with the Farmer's Digest, and WJZ at 6 a.m. with Galen Drake. At 6.30 a.m. on CBS, Arthur Godfrey time went on the air. Here's that man himself, Arthur Godfrey. (laughs) Thank you, Tony Marvin. You make me sound so important. Thank you. And hello, everybody. And a special hello to the Godfrey was a special assignment announcer in April of 1945 when he was a mournful reporter of Franklin D. Roosevelt's funeral coverage. Positioned near the White House, he gave a detailed and emotionally wrought description of the procession. CBS gave him his own weekday morning show. It was soon expanded to include the 7 a.m. time slot. Godfrey was suddenly on the air five days per week. Ralph Bewley, a guest Much weekday morning and afternoon programming was that in the future, policemen must have pleasing personalities. Talk, variety, and news <laughs> dominated the morning airwaves. There was the Breakfast Club, Breakfast with Dorothy and Dick, and Mrs. Goes a Shopping, Coast to Coast on NBC at 11 a.m. New York time. Fred Waring signed on the air. Ladies and gentlemen, the Fred Waring Show with Fred Waring and his Pennsylvania. Welcome to the Fred Waring Show. Fred Waring and his Pennsylvanians broadcasting from Radio City in New York. Here to greet you as your host, Fred Waring. 
The orchestra leader and his Pennsylvanians had been lured back to NBC from the Blue Network on June 4, 1945, to become part of an experiment to bring nighttime quality programming to daytime radio. Bring another program for our Friday sponsor, the Minnesota Valley Canning Company, producers of those famous quality products, Green Giant brand peas and Niblets brand whole kernel corn. Here again comes that jolly Green Giant. At $18,000 per week just for the orchestra costs, the Fred Waring Show was therefore the most expensive daytime show ever at that point. Running opposite of CBS's Breakfast at Hollywood with Tom Brenneman, the enormous Glee Club sound of his orchestra gave it a voluminous spirit. But Brenneman's show still scored the second highest rating of any weekday audience with a 7.0. After, it was time for the soaps to begin. Often the tales of how actors and actresses came to be in radio were as melodramatic as the ones of the stories they appeared in. And the next thing that happened was Ransom Sherman. I would go in and listen to Club Matinee every day because mm -hmm. he was just terrific. I thought he was so funny, and I had a very loud laugh. And he began to take notice of me, and Kraft was coming to Chicago to replace a summer session of Fibber McGee and Molly, and they hired Ransom Sherman. Ransom somehow arranged for Cecil Underwood, who was then the director, to mm -hmm. meet with me. He heard me, and he hired me to do a part on The Ransom Sherman Show. That was out of Chicago mm -hmm. that summer. But I did a little comedy thing, and at one point I had to say something about my slip was showing, and the audience began to scream, and in fact my slip was showing. Oh. So it got a tremendous laugh, and then they were coming back to Los Angeles. They did 13 weeks, and then Ransom was coming back. I thought, what have I got to lose? They're going back to L.A. This is my chance. So I bought myself a round-trip ticket on the Scout for $75, mm. sat up for four nights, right? <laughs> a lady on the train took pity on me, took me back to her house where I spent the first night, called Cecil and said, I'm here, are you going to use me? And he said, yes, we're going to use you this week, Tuesday night. That was how I came to Hollywood. Boy, that's a, you're a pretty spunky kid then, weren't you? Wasn't I crazy? Yeah. I mean, only I was 17. Yeah. Only a crazy kid without thinking of consequences. When I think back on it, I don't know how I did it. I lied to my parents. I told them I had a steady job. I was coming to L.A. Mm -hmm. I had a contract. It was no such thing. I didn't know where I was going to live. Those people drove me around. We arrived here on a Sunday. They drove me around Hollywood where I booked a room at the Hollywood Towers. And that's where I stayed. But I never did cash that ticket in for about the first year. I was so sure that, that I was gonna not going to make it. Mm -hmm. Right. As a soap actress, you needed to be on your toes, especially during the war. Most were daily, 15-minute serial continuations. Actress Fran Carlin explains. I was on one called This Changing World. It was a very poignant story, and the husband was sent overseas, and then a woman's trying to adapt herself to a business life and a life alone. They tried to do several shows like that. Technically, we went through some amazing kind of things because we were always on standby for news so that as the actors brought numerous colored pencils to the studio because you would have first cut, second cut, and third cut as to have, that means, you know, the cut in the script as to what kind of an emergency broadcast might be coming on. While you were trying to emote, 
you would look into the control room and the director would be standing there with one finger up, which meant take the first cut and that's all you need. And you really had to have eyes in the side of your head in radio. It's 11.45 a.m. This is WEAF, NBC in New York. little country philosopher who makes life worth living by helping those who need help and by outwitting those who are too clever and scheming in helping themselves. At 11.45 a.m. on WEAF, David Harum went on the air. While on ABC, Aunt Jenny's Real Life Stories, noted for its five-chapter continuations with a rotating cast signed on. Midday brought Big Sister, Helen Trent, and Argyle Sunday to WABC Airwaves. At 1 p.m. on WEAF was the female Arthur Godfrey, Mary Margaret McBride. She held no rehearsals and used no script, according to Radio Life. And Life described her emceeing style as one with an air of the little girl lost in the big city. Opposite Miss McBride was WABC's Procter & Gamble-sponsored Life Can Be Beautiful, which was followed at 1.15 p.m. by Ma Perkins, starring Virginia Payne. And now, for Ma Perkins. Well, a couple of years ago, a young man came to make his home with Ma. His name, of course, was Joseph. And in the months that followed, he came almost to take the place in Ma's life of her own son, John, who was killed overseas during the war. For the most part, he's been rather shy and retiring. But now, suddenly, Joseph seems to have come into his own, thanks to Miss Ann Morrison, a very attractive and quite famous photographer who's come to take pictures at Rushville Center for a national magazine. There's been some gossip around town about the two of them, none of which is true, of course. Well, right now, it's a quarter to six in the morning. Joseph has invited Miss Morrison to see the town aboard his milk wagon. Listen. It was nice of you, Joseph, to think to bring along the thermos of coffee. It was really a lifesaver. Oh, that's okay. I thought you might like it. It does get kind of nippy these mornings. Ma Perkins was homespun. Oh, get she ran a lumber yard Joseph. in the small town of Rushville Wait. Center. Miss Payne oh, never missed her performance during the show's 27-year radio run. She was just 23 when the show premiered, had a college education, and was paid $50,000 per year at a time when that was highly uncommon. For soap actresses. I'm sure Chester won't mind. The media referred to Ma Perkins as America's mother of the air. To say what I did a minute ago. Everyone's entitled to his own opinion. But I didn't say it flippantly. Believe me, won't you? In storyline during the war, Ma lost her son John in the European theater. I'm not guilty because my A flood of sympathy letters came into the networks. The drama was so popular that although Ma Perkins had been running on NBC, by 1945, CBS had picked it up as well, and the series ran on two networks in two different time slots. A late 1945 FCC report actually complained of too many soaps on the dial. During the 1945-46 season, NBC had 22 soap operas, while CBS scheduled 17. I love Star. 
That year, Ma Perkins had a collective rating average of 12.5, with a little over 4 million listeners, placing it in the top 50 of all programs. That number is even more impressive when considering the limited total audience at 115 on a weekday afternoon. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. I was on scholarship there for drama. When I was a sophomore, I was in a play. Some people from NBC saw it and came backstage afterwards. As a result of that, I signed a five-year contract with NBC, and that was the beginning. It was the uh, the hub of all of, of mm-hmm. radio drama and soap opera, and the great comedies all came out of here, too, then. Amos and Andy and Fibber McGee mm-hmm. and Molly, and a great many others, Vic and Sade, which was my favorite. But all of the soap operas and Lights Out, First Nighter, so many, many. Can you recall what your first radio job was? I can't really. Some people uh, say it was a poetry reading on the Chicago Symphonic Hour with the Mundelein First Speaking Choir, which was signed to a year's contract at NBC. And other people tell me, no, it was on a show called Pretty Kitty Kelly. I think it was on Guiding Light. The Guiding Light. Created by Erna Phillips. Another of NBC's highest-rated soaps was The Guiding Light, one of the longest-running serials in broadcasting history, airing into the 21st century for a total of 72 seasons on radio and TV. Ray? Ray! Oh, (laughs) come in, Charlotte. I was up here around 7.30. You were so engrossed in your work, I didn't have the heart to disturb you. But you've been at it since dinner time, dear. Don't you think you should relax a bit? Or is it too late to go to the movies? Oh, I wasn't too anxious to the go The Guiding Light day. began on January 25th, 1937 on NBC. How about a walk? Mm, no, I don't... In December of 1945, it was sponsored by General Mills. You're sure I'm not disturbing you? No, no. Arthur Peterson anyway. starred as the Reverend John Rutledge of Five Points, Something and Mercedes McCambridge starred as his daughter Mary in the 1930s. The show's title refers to the lamp in his study that family and residents could see as a sign for them to find help when needed. Well, I do and I don't. In The Guiding Light's earliest phase, Reverend Rutledge had two decades prior come to Five Points to set up his church. Although the show took place in Chicago, Five Points had been, during the 19th century, the worst slum in New York City, overrun with poverty, alcohol, and overcrowding all situated on a marshy, uneven block of land that had at one time been a rotten freshwater pond known as the Collect. The series creator, Irma Phillips, was often called the queen of the soaps. She dared to depart from formula. Her serials usually contained just one main scene in each installment, with only a couple of characters featured. Occasionally, an entire episode would be taken up by a reverend sermon. In 1944, when Phillips found herself writing three concurrently slotted General Mills soaps, Today's Children, The Guiding Light, and The Woman in White, she began to integrate the storylines, having elements and characters drift into each show. At The Guiding Light's peak, Miss Phillips produced it independently, sold it to the sponsors, and offered it to the network as a complete package. She paid her own casts and crew, and still earned $5,000 per week. It's funny. What is? I've thought all along that there wasn't a husband in the world who knew his wife quite as well as I knew you. You certainly have surprised me. The soaps continued into the late afternoon with shows like Pepper Young's Family, Backstage Wife, Lorenzo Jones, 
and live on NBC Coast to Coast at 4.15 p.m. Eastern Time, Stella Dallas. Memories, memories, dreams of love so true. And now, Stella Dallas. The true-to-life sequel is written by us to the world-famous drama of Mother Love and Sacrifice. And now for our sequel to Stella Dallas. In Washington with her daughter Laurel and Laurel's husband Dick Grosvenor, Stella Dallas is falsely accused by Dick's mother Mrs. Grosvenor of stealing an Egyptian mummy. Stella, however, through Jeff Kentrell, an underworld acquaintance of Stella's old admirer Ed Munn, discovers the real thief to be Rashid, the twin brother of her friend Sheikh Ahmed, whom Mrs. Grosvenor is sponsoring in society. And Stella it premiered on October 25th, 1937. Stella was the beautiful daughter of an impoverished farmhand who had married above her station in life. She was portrayed for the entire 18-year run by Ann Elstner. A great many weekday daytime dramas like Stella Dallas were Frank and Ann Hummert productions, which were sponsored by Sterling Drugs. Jan Minor was often featured. As far as Frank and Ann Hummert were concerned, they ran a tight ship, didn't they? They certainly did, and they had very specific ideas and, uh, and did a grand job. I mean, uh, they people really had, perhaps are wondering I think they how... had five or six a day. They had Stella Dallas, right. Widow Brown, Laura Lawton, Amanda of Honeymoon Hill, Helen Trent, Lorenzo Jones, David Harum. They were all Hummert shows. Yeah. How did they manage to produce so many shows? Well, they had a group of directors and a group mm -hmm. of producers and a group of writers. I mean, they had a tremendous organization. And then, of course, they had coordinators, and Frances von Bernhardi was head of casting, and she had assistants, and it was like working for MGM. By the time When a Girl Marries aired on WEAF at 5 p.m., sunset was coming over the New York area. The December days radio audience was changing. Fathers and professional women were returning home from work, while kids... We're now home from school. The Super Delicious Cereal presents The Adventures of Superman. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. And today, as we begin a new adventure for the Man of Steel, Jimmy Olsen is in grave danger. We'll join the young reporter in a moment. But right now, here's a word from your announcer. Was there a time that you were doing Buck Rogers and some other programs? Yes, there was one time when I <laughs> was doing Buck Rogers, two Philip Morris dramatic spots on the Philip Morris variety shows, and Smiling Jack. Oh, and during that time, I also... We recorded Superman. Those were busy days and nights. I left the house right after breakfast, got home between midnight and one o'clock. Those were busy days. fun of collecting all 18 different buttons in the series and wearing them pinned on your jacket or your dress or cap. And the fun of trading... The Adventures of Superman was first transcribed by WOR in New York for syndication in February of 1940. By December of 1945, it was a daily, live, coast-to-coast -coast mutual broadcasting system show, airing sometime between 5 
and 5.45 p.m. on a given day and sponsored by Kellogg's Pep Cereal. Bud Collier starred as Superman. Joan Alexander was Lois Lane. Jackie Kelk was Jimmy Olsen. Famed radio director Jack Johnstone spent some of the early days of his career directing the show. A fellow by the name of Bob Maxwell handled the radio end of it, I th- but we recorded it at World Broadcasting on Hill and Dale Recordings. We recorded on wax, a wax disc about this thing. Because two pieces of kryptonite, the amazing element which robs them of the There was no editing, no nothing, but go ahead and do it. I remember one night, we recorded four shows in a night. We had to get out of the studio at midnight. We recorded all but one. After rehearsing it, I realized that we had 20 minutes to record a 15-minute show, and that was all. In other words, we had to get it. Come hell or high water. Drawing a long knife, he slipped noiselessly up behind Jimmy, who was searching a dresser in the bedroom. The episode ended with Superman as Clark Kent yelling, No, no, please! Three gunshots off mic. In order to get them off mic in that relatively small studio, Jim Rogan, sound effects man, who incidentally had the biggest hands I've ever seen on any human being anywhere, he couldn't buy gloves in the wintertime. We stood him in the sub-control room, between the studio and the control room, propped open the door with three match packs. This I remember distinctly. That gave us the proper off-mic perspective of these free shots. We started recording. Everything went along just beautifully, just as smoothly as could be possibly imagined. And finally, in the last line, Bud Collier yells, No, no, please, don't! An iPhone help him. Yes, I kill you. You're not killing anyone, my friend. <laughs> oh, you won't be good, eh? Uh, All right. In that case, I'll just have to calm you down, eh? Like this. Oh, oh. Finally, the door is pushed open. Jim stands there with these two guns, two thirty-eight caliber revolvers. He'd broken the triggers on them. And he walked over to me and said, Jack, I done it mental. Where, where did this fella come from? <laughs> I don't know. I was looking through the stretcher when I heard something. There he was behind me with a knife. He must have come in through the bathroom window. There's a fire escape outside it. During this episode, part two of the story arc, Looking for Kryptonite, which aired on December 5th, 1945. Jimmy Olsen discovers an important clue and is in great danger. A strange Arabic man tries to knife him, but Superman, disguised as Clark Kent, comes to the rescue. After being subdued by Superman, the Arab actually commits suicide. Never mind that, Jim. I knew you and Mr. Kent was in here, so I went to the window at the end of the hall for a bit of a smoke. Well, now, let's have a look at him. I think he's an Asiatic. He's an Arab. Superman's announcer was the famous New York radio and cartoon man, Jackson Beck. Yeah, that's right. Now, there were two office boys. One was Jimmy Olsen, the other was Beanie. Jimmy Olsen was played by Jackie Kelk or Jack Grimes from time to time. 
Uh, he was the senior office boy, and he's the one that appears in all the cartoons. But there was a sort of subsidiary character for comedy relief, which I did, which was kind of a rip-off of Ezra Stone's Henry Aldrich. You know, a real cracked voice, high kind of... Gee whiz, Mr. Kent, what are you going to do next? <laughs> you know... Everybody get panicked and fall down. I just wish you had a recording of all the breakups that took place. Because that show was Hysteria Incorporated. Many's the time that we broke up and rolled on the floor. And it was, you know, it was tough then because everything was live, nothing on tape. So if you made a boo-boo or you fell on the floor and you got hysterical, there was no cutting the tape and then going back and doing it over again when you sobered up. In New York, it was the Mutual Broadcasting System and ABC that had the highest-rated kids' shows. Opposite of WOR Superman at 5.15, the American Broadcasting Company's WJZ aired Dick Tracy, while NBC and CBS were running live coast-to-coast, Porsche Faces Life, and The School of the Air. At 5.30, WOR had Captain Midnight, and WJZ had Jack Armstrong. CBS ran a new Western adventure serial called The Samaran Tavern. Samaran Tavern. Gateway to the Old West. Ride with Star Travis, Federal Scout, and Randy Martin on the Trail of High Adventure. The show premiered in April of 1945 and was billed as the Gateway to the Old West. The juvenile hero was Randy Martin, who rode with Scout Star Travis on the Trails of Adventure. Paul Conrad starred and Howard Dietz directed. Yesterday at Cimarron Tavern, a man dressed in the uniform of a captain of the United States Cavalry covered a bet in a card game with his saber. This so enraged Ma Buford that she paid the wager herself and drove the man from the Cimarron Tavern compound. Taking the saber into the tavern, Ma and Pa Buford made a startling discovery. That man's a disgrace to the uniform of the Army, Pa. Wagering his sword in a gambling game. Yes, no good soldier do a thing like that. Well, he won't get it back. He's unworthy of it. He needn't come poking around here to get it back either. Mm, it's a mighty fine-looking saber. Yes, it is. Got gold on the hill, see? Yeah, it is gold, ain't it? Say, ain't that writing on the blade? Huh? I didn't notice that. What does it say, Ma? Well, let me see. Captain Randy Martin, U.S. Army. What? Say that again. That's what it says, Captain Randy Martin, U.S. Army. It's there just as plain as day. Well, that's Randy's name. That's his name, all right. What do you think, Ma? I don't think. I know. Unfortunately, the series couldn't find a regular sponsor and was off the air by the autumn of 1946. I became an actor... In 1932, with the Civic Repertory Theater of Eagle Agadian at the uh, old Civic Repertory down on 14th Street and 6th Avenue. And I became an apprentice, and I learned my trade, I learned my business, and uh, later on I became a member of the company. And I was in very good company, I might say, at that time. Some very wonderful people were in that company, like Burgess Meredith, Parker Fenley, Alexander Scorby. So, time goes on and I have to work. <laughs> I wanted to do some radio, but I didn't know how to get into it. A friend of mine who was in a play with me, her name was Abby Lewis. She uh, 
was a go-getter after radio. And she said, Stotts, you have a fine voice, and there's no reason in the world why you shouldn't do some radio. And I said, well, I don't know these people. I don't know how to go about getting it. And she said, all right, let me give you a list. And down she didn't. She gave me a list of about 10 or 15 people. And the next thing you know, I had a running part on Pepper Young's family. I was beginning to, uh, to like this radio bit because I found it very easy. One uses one's imaginative powers to create a picture out of whole cloth which has no basis in truth, whatever, except the words. If you can make it sound as though you meant it, if you can make it sound as though it was important, you're in. As many of them have mentioned, radio actors and actresses freelanced. This meant you ate when you worked, and you starved when you didn't. Although Stotts Cotsworth was starring as Casey in Crime Photographer in December of 1945, he was still appearing on midday programs, including starring as ace Brooklyn Eagle reporter David Farrell on NBC's live coast-to-coast soap opera, Front Page Farrell. Only a few lights burn here and there throughout the plant, and the tapping of the teletype can barely be heard from far off in the wire room. David yawns, stretches, and looks up, surprised as Kate Ward, his fellow reporter on the Eagle, walks into his office. Well, Kate, what are you doing working so late, hmm? Making up for the work I didn't do yesterday, Dave. My Sunday feature should have been in last night. Murphy will have my life if I don't get it in tonight. Oh, that's right. I knew I missed you around yesterday. Oh, you mean it mattered to you. The day wasn't the same without me. If you lived in the eastern or central time zones, the six and seven o'clock blocks of programming were filled with news, dinner music, and Bill Stern's sports reporting. Although many shows originated from Los Angeles, the primetime shows were often, but not unilaterally, on East Coast time. New York City, New York, December 5th, 1945. Open letter to Santa Claus. Dear Santa, overnight you have become the most famous personality in America. Your fan mail is terrific. Your popularity overwhelming. We know that your task is not easy, that your day is long and your burden heavy. We know that one day at Macy's basement can bring you many, many little annoyances. But please, Santa, don't let little annoyances get you down. Why be irritated? And Santa... Here's a P.S., hey. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to Frank Sinatra. Night and day. In December of 1945, programs like CBS's Songs by Sinatra and NBC's The Eddie Cantor Show aired one broadcast live coast-to-coast. Both were on at 9 p.m. for the East Coast and 6 p.m. for the West. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, from mighty Manhattan, old gold cigarettes. If you lived in Chicago, your programming block was often situated on New York time. And if you lived in a mountain time zone city, your programming block was often situated on Los Angeles time. Axel, pack up the pull motor in the old gold musical squad and we'll venture forth into radio land. Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. And since we've no place to go... However, some shows, like CBS's Dr. Christian, aired two distinct live broadcasts at different times. One was done for New York at 8.30 Eastern Time, and another was done for the West Coast at 8.30 Pacific Time. It was part of the charm 
that made the radio industry in 1945 so unique. That live business was something that some sponsors drove me up the wall with. You remember live from New York, live from Hollywood, live from Chicago. I'd go on with Inner Sanctum Mysteries at 8.30 to 9 o'clock Sunday night in New York, and we'd have to come back at 12.30 to do the West Coast broadcast. So the announcer could say, live from New York. And let me tell you, between 9 o'clock when we went off for New York and 12.30, a lot of my actors had a pretty good time. Didn't always get the same show. Company presents the new Reports of the Nation with Boris Karloff, Alan Young, Fred Utell, Sergeant Ben Karoki, and Maxine Sullivan, who opens the show with Lop Loman. Newscasting had become a full-fledged wing of broadcasting during the war. In 1945, there were 29 separate primetime news programs appearing in the ratings books. But the audience was rapidly shrinking. Lowell Thomas fell from 27th to 40th in the ratings. H.V. Kaltenborn lost 30% of his audience, dropping out of the top 50 for the first time in five years. He would never return. Gabriel Heater lost over 45% an estimated 4 million listeners of his nightly 9 p.m. audience on Mutual. Only three multiple-run news programs had ratings higher than a 10. There was less to fear and more to celebrate. Jack Haley in the village store. Eve Arden, manager with Dave Street, the Fountaineers, and our guest for tonight, George Raft. And here is the star of our program, Jack Haley. NBC's Thursday night stronghold in the ratings had also begun to slip by December of 1945. The Kraft Music Hall lost a quarter of its audience after Bing Crosby walked out, being replaced by Frank Morgan. The Seal Test Village Store also saw its ratings drop by 25% after Joan Davis left to start her own program. Eve Arden replaced her on the series. Even the Abbott and Costello show wasn't immune. The duo's ratings had peaked at a 21.3 in March of 1945, but just a year later, their audience had shrunk to a 15. It was here that CBS and William Paley saw the opportunity. When Paley returned home from the war, he promised to take on NBC in part by creating innovative drama. In the autumn of 1945, the makings of a CBS rise had begun to take shape. Two new Thursday programs joined the overall ratings top 50 for the first time. The first was the FBI in Peace and War, and the second was produced and directed by William Spear. Now... The Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California presents... Suspense. Tonight, Roma Wines bring you Mr. Lee Bowman as star of I Won't Take a Minute, a suspense play produced, edited, and directed for Roma Wines by William Spear. Suspense, 
Radio's out Suspense had moved to this Thursday at 8 p.m. time slot in December of 1943 when Roma Wines signed on as a sponsor. The show was slowly finding its footing when this play, It Won't Take a Minute, aired on December 6, 1945. It features Lee Bowman, whose most recent film, She Wouldn't Say Yes, had opened the prior week. His suspense co-star was the talented Kathy Lewis. In a remarkable tale of... Suspense! She was very good to look at, which is why I waited till I was 25 and met her. Here's how she went. First, a lot of gold all beaten up into a froth and poured over her head and allowed to set there in crinkly little curls. Blue eyes and a mouth with real lines. And in addition, well, she had everything just about right. And believe me, I was going to throw away the sales slip and not return the merchandise once it got to my house. That's why I nearly went nuts every evening waiting for her to come out of the building where she worked. She was always the last one out, and this particular evening she was later than usual. It got dark. The street lights came on. And the rush hour was over before she put in an appearance. Gee, Kenny, I'm sorry. You've been waiting long? Oh, no, no. I just nearly got run in for picketing the place, that's all. I hurried all I could. Please don't be mad at me, Kenny. I'm not mad at you. The slave driver you work for. Why do you always have to be the last one out? Oh, it's only for another week. Yeah. Come on, let's go. I got to deliver this package on the way home for his nibs. But you're not going home. We're going to Philharmonic. Thursday, remember? Oh, it won't take any time at all, honey. It's just around the corner. 415 Martin Street. Okay. That guy nerves me up making you play messenger girl after hours. Oh, let's don't talk about Mr. Heston. Let's talk about us. Been counting the days? All day. Thirteen left. And a half. Don't forget the half if it's to be a noon wedding. Why all the fuss about the half? Oh, I don't like thirteen by itself. I'll be glad when it's tomorrow and only twelve days left. See, you're cute. The more I know you, the cuter you get. <laughs> I bet you won't say that a year from now. You'll be calling me your old lady then. Uh, you'll always be Steffi to me. Just Steffi. Not even Stephanie? No, too sophisticated, too foreign sounding. <laughs> Steffi, that's you. Hey, uh, what number are you supposed to deliver that package to? 415. This must be it. What a dump. Your boss have many customers in dumps like this? Oh, I don't know. Hold a, a match for me, will you, Kenny? I can't see your name. There, that's better. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah. I still don't see uh, it. What was the name? Muller, apartment 4B. Oh, oh, here, here it is. Name card's fallen out of the slip and gotten lost. No wonder I couldn't find it. Maybe they're not home. Oh, I'll ring it again. Uh, there it is. I don't like those automatic door latches. You never know who's up there. Oh, don't be silly. Wait here, honey. I won't take a minute. I never timed a cigarette. I suppose they take around five minutes. This one seemed to take longer, but then uh, look who I was waiting for. I punched it out with my foot and let another. I thought, won't take a minute. Yeah, I might have known it. I thought, what's she doing? Saying a tea up there? counted my change just to give myself something to do. I took off my hat and looked it over like I'd never seen it before. Five cigarettes later, she still hadn't come back. Suspense was perfecting the art of the macabre Christmas season play. Exactly one year later, the program would air another horrific holiday drama, 
the house in Cypress Canyon. Tonight, we bring you a special FBI presentation commemorating the fourth anniversary of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Friday, December 7th was the fourth anniversary of the bombings of Pearl Harbor in Manila to help commemorate the mournful anniversary. ABC aired this episode of This Is Your FBI. Stretching tonight from the quiet meadows of France, the hillsides of Italy, and across the sands of North Africa to the jungle islands of the Pacific are gardens of little white crosses where almost 275,000 American boys lie in eternal condemnation of that day four years ago, which will live forever in infamy. Sunday, December 7th, 1941. The day that Japan stabbed America in the back at Pearl Harbor. There were two performances, one for the East Coast Network at 8.30, and again over the West Coast Network at 8.30 Pacific time. With them, the Axis nations, through their agents in this country, were plotting and working against the internal security of America. Across the board, Friday's ratings had taken the hardest hit. With the war ending, social plans on the weekend's first evening picked up. Radio listening became secondary. CBS's The Aldrich Family led the ratings that month with a 17.4. And NBC's famous bar comedy, Duffy's Tavern, held strong with a 14.5. It's Friday night, so we take you now to Duffy's Tavern, starring Archie himself, Ed Gardner. Originally part of CBS's experimental pilot summer series forecast in 1940, Duffy's Tavern had moved to the Blue Network in October of 1942 and then to NBC's main network before the Blue Network was sold in September of 1944. Sponsored by Bristol-Myers, it starred Ed Gardner as Archie, the manager of Duffy's Tavern, the eyesore of the east side, where the elite meet to eat. Gardner's heavily New York-accented portrayal of Archie has inspired several characters in the years since. Well, one from Colucci, the fruit peddler. Yeah, very pretty card, too. It's got his coat of arms. Two crossed bananas with a tomato rampant in the background. <laughs> yeah, and the other one's from Cavendish, The Undertaker. Yeah, it says, wishing you a joyous and merry Christmas and a short but happy New Year. <laughs> P.S. Drop in and see our new Christmas wrappings. <laughs> yeah, you ought to be here, Duffy. Already the joint is reeking with Christmassy odor. Yeah, we're even putting on a show tonight, The Christmas Carol. What's well, no play by Charles Dickens? Dickens, as in go to D. Another famous act that got his start on radio on CBS during the forecast series was the Brooklyn-born Danny Kaye. I wanted to ask you about, you were on the Fanny Bryce show. Oh, yes, after the, the uh, 51 Night Club, I went to La Martinique in New York. Hey, you, Danny Kaye, I've been waiting for you. Oh, I was afraid you'd be here, the average radio listener, huh? What do you hear from the And moon? then uh, I was there 17 weeks at La Martinique. And then I went overseas and entertained in North Africa and in Sicily and Sardinia and in Italy with the Fifth Army. Then I came back home and I did one season with Fanny Bryce. 
That was season 44-45. And then I went overseas and entertained the service people in the South Pacific and the war came to an end. Mm -hmm. I was in Mindanao or Leyte in the Philippines. And I came back home and opened the Shape Ranch Club in October. And uh, after that, you know the story. He was a master of tongue twisters, double talk. And according to Radio Life, he loved the sound and rhythm of languages and was at home with almost any dialect. The show came to the CBS Airwaves on January 6, 1945. And in December of 1945, it was sponsored by Paps Beer and airing one coast-to-coast broadcast from Hollywood at 7.30 Pacific time. Unfortunately, Kay's performing commitments caused the show to be moved to New York in March. And although his ratings finished in Friday's top 10, they failed to crack the overall top 50. And Pabst canceled the program when the season ended in June. Although he continued to become a major film and television star who won a Golden Globe and an Emmy, plus an honorary Oscar, Danny Kay would never again star in his own radio program. When the blue of the night meets the gold of the day, someone waits for me. Crosby speaking. This one is for the Treasury. A matter of victory bonds and a free movie day, sponsored by the War Activities Committee of the Motion Picture Industry. Along on this ride are little Joni Edwards, Gene Kelly, Lieutenant of the United States Navy, and Pops Whiteman and the band. Music, Pappy, which accompany me along the Navajo Trail, hmm? Normally, after suspense aired at 8 p.m. over CBS stations on Thursdays, the FBI and Peace and War followed at 8.30. Thursday, December 6th, 1945, usually scheduled FBI and Peace and War, was preempted for a special victory bond program hosted by Bing Crosby and orchestra leader Paul Whiteman. Although Crosby was on strike with NBC, he had no problem donating his time and talent to CBS to help sell victory bonds. The U.S. government Series E bond, was first issued in 1941 to help pay for the U.S.'s entry into World War II. Seven bond drives had taken place throughout the war. The budgetary expenses for the years 1941 through 45 amounted to $317 billion, of which $281 billion was directly related to the war effort. Expenditures had also fiscally climbed from $9.6 billion in 1940 to nearly $100 billion in 1945. The result of which was that in December of 1945, the U.S. war debt was $240 billion. How's everything down in Gronesville on the church? Just fine, about the same, taking some and leaving some. Uh-oh, like the good old days. Oh, I resent that a little too soon, but I resent it the good old days. <laughs> I expect to be kicking it around in 55. 55, and cashing them in, too. And you do not mean checks. I definitely do not mean checks. Victory bonds are the word. With music by the bingo. And his pops. You gonna lay some of them horns and fiddles on me there, pops? Will you? Yes, sir. Anything you say. Well, I say, uh, now the I know victory bond effort was part of the renewed public service marketing campaign to help sell these U.S. bonds, which accrued interest for 40 years. Radio, long a patriotic organ, did its part to help. 407,316 American men and women 
had lost their lives in World War II. Another estimated 671,278 were wounded. With these victory bonds, Americans could help make sure their wounded countrymen and women would be cared for. NBC dedicated its entire Saturday, December 8th block of programming to the victory bond selling effort on the final day of the drive. Denominations were incrementally available between $25 and $10,000. Thanks, Bing. You see, I'd like to talk about some old acquaintances I've been seeing. They're in naval hospitals all over the country. I remember, well, I'll never forget the boy I saw limping slowly along a corridor one afternoon. And a medical officer with me said, You see that boy? His ankle was smashed, almost severed two years ago. But we worked on him, patched him up, and then turned him over to physical therapy. Now he's beginning to walk. Before we send him out of here, he'll be walking perfectly, maybe another year. So there it is. Two years behind him. A year to go. There's a story and a responsibility in that. The story is that sailor's. The responsibility is yours. It's up to you to see that all the old acquaintances, in blue or in khaki, are never forgotten. They've earned every bit of care and more that money can buy. Your money. In your victory bonds. This victory of ours will have a very bitter taste if one boy anywhere is forgotten. So remember them tomorrow, December 7th, when you remember the beginning at Pearl Harbor. Remember them and buy extra bonds. You can get them at any motion picture theater in the country tomorrow, and we can do no less than buy these bonds and sign our names to a real victory. The eighth and final victory bond drive had lasted for 41 days from October 29th through December 8th in 1945. The goal was $11 billion, and more than $21 billion, or over $285.5 billion today, was raised. Tomorrow's a big day at the movies. Your ticket's free when you buy those victory bonds. Well said, Gene, and thank you. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? But gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow. Jack Benny's show was really quite easy to do. I'm talking now from the actor's standpoint. Obviously, the writing was meticulous. Jack honed a lot of that writing. He sat with the writers a great deal. Mm -hmm. He, uh, If it came down to a rock-bottom decision as to a joke in or out, it would be very often Jack's decision that made uh -huh. that happen. But for an actor, it was a very simple show to do. You'd go in, we'll say on Saturday, you'd read through once. Just sit down, read the script straight through, get up and leave, 
and you'd come back in on Sunday, you'd read once around the table, go and read it once on the mic, and that's all until showtime. Just that easy to do. So the whole uh, thing was really right in there with the writing. Well, it was that, and also (laughs) that Jack knew his people, and they wrote for those people. Mm -hmm. Jack had a great thing that I don't think any other comic in the business had. If you were to pick up a Jack Benny script and read it, you'd say, well, wait a minute, where, where are Mr. Benny's jokes? Because Jack didn't do jokes. He did looks. He did takes. He fed, really, you, the actor around him. That's mm-hmm. the way he conducted his show. The big jokes were in the hands of the people who surrounded him, which was most unusual. And it showed that he had tremendous confidence in himself. He surrounded himself with characters that people expected to hear also. When, yeah. As soon as he said, oh, mister, people said, oh, boy, here it comes. He's going to get it, you know? <laughs> yeah. And if he said, excuse me, and the fellow said, see... He says, oh boy, here it comes, now they're going to do that routine. The people were in on it, and I think they enjoyed being in on it. I guess the fact that the show stayed on top all the years that it did proved that. The Lucky Strike Program, starring Jack Benny, with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Larry Stevens, and yours truly, Don Wilson. Ladies and gentlemen, last Sunday, Steve Bradley, Jack Benny's press agent, forced Jack into having a contest. You listeners were asked to write in letters completing this simple sentence, I can't stand Jack Benny because. And believe me, folks, the letters have been pouring in. (laughs) So let's go out to Jack's house in Beverly Hills where the whole gang is helping Jack open the mail. Hmm, Just look at all those letters. I don't know why I let Steve Bradley force me into this contest. It's only been on a week. I bet I've received over a million insults already. Jack, stop exaggerating. You haven't even received half a million insults. I have, too. Oh, don't be so egotistical. (laughs) The I Can't Stand Jack Benny contest was working. In December, his ratings had climbed to a 24.8, his highest since March of 1944. It helped that Benny was giving away $10,000, not just in American dollars, but in victory bonds. And the six-week contest would draw over 275,000 entries. It took the judges until the end of January to decide on the prizes. That up. My house is full of mice. <laughs> <laughs> so there, I won't give her a prize, believe me. Well, Mr. Benny, here's a letter from Senator Claghorn. Senator Claghorn? Yeah, he's on Fred Allen's program. Oh. What does the senator say, Larry? He says, I can't stand... I say I can't stand Jack Benny... Because he's so corny, when he sits down to dinner, he butters his ears. (laughs) Hmm. His ears, that is. Benny had been on the air since May of 1932. For almost that entire time, he'd been seconded by the sarcastic Mary Livingston, played by Benny's real-life wife, Sadie Marks. You're letting them get past you tonight. In the mid-1940s, the Jack Benny program featured a lineup of some of the most quick-witted situation comics, with the most well-built characters in entertainment. Band leader Phil Harris joined the cast in October of 1936, playing the sly, sloshed comedic stooge. Well, those guys all came up through the ranks, you know. I mean, they knew what they were doing. Because when you're around Benny, you were around a guy that he and Fred Allen and guys like that, they're timing, you know. They're um, like Benny used to have office hours in Beverly Hills. Those writers had to be there, didn't they? They were there at a certain time. He sat at the table. Nobody took bits home like they do now. You do this and you two writers do. 
no way. You sat right at the table and started this thing, and I've been in there some time. Jack and I, we really got along. And I've been in there some time when they had a line for me to break the building down. Mm -hmm. And Benny'd say, no, that's not fit his character. I've been too long building it up. In other words, he protected, protected. Okay, now where's the place? Oh, here it is. I think Jack Benny is the most big-hearted man I know. Big-hearted? Yeah, see? Phil, that's pig-headed. <laughs> I had to tell him yet. Benny Anderson played Rochester Van Jones. Benny's incredibly popular valet, and the first African-American to have a regular role on network radio. Although he usually did not appear in the opening minutes of the shows, by the mid-1940s, he began to surpass Mary Livingston as Jack Benny's main foil. Oh, Rochester! Yes, boss! Are you reading any of the contest mail? Yeah, lots of it! Good. You know, boss, two more letters, and I'll be convinced that I'm working for the wrong man! <laughs> Jack had a basic philosophy, if I may divert here for a moment, that Certainly. as I analyze it, it was obvious that this was his philosophy. The bigger he could make the supporting people that worked with him on the show, the bigger it made the Jack Benny show, and the bigger it made Jack Benny. Now, this is a leaf that I don't think any other comedian ever took out of Jack's book, and it was so sound and successful that I'm surprised somebody else didn't pick it up, too. But that was Jack. That was the generosity and the thoughtfulness and the great showmanship that were reflected in Jack's operation in all the years he was on the air. Oh, I don't know. Can't stand Jack Benny. <laughs> Molly, you can't enter the contest. You're a relative. Don Wilson was Benny's longtime announcer. And Mel Blank play almost every comedic part one could think of. See, I did his trained caller, his violin teacher, his Maxwell, his, the man who was uh, always the salesman in the, at Christmas time in the department store, and several other voices for Jack. What was that famous voice then at the railroad station? I think that seems to be one of the most... Oh, yeah, that was the trained caller. It says, train ending on track five for Anaheim, Azusa, and Kamanga. You know, a lot of people thought those were phony towns, but those are real towns around Los Angeles. Yeah, I found out. After, like, <laughs> I made a few wrong turns since I've been out here. <laughs> While Frank Nelson played Benny's arch nemesis. If it wasn't Mel Blanc popping up, it was Nelson, who'd come on as a railroad ticket man, a department store floor walker, a barber, or in any number of scenarios. Some Jack kind of always a... referred to him as his nemesis. Say, Jack, I'd like to see that invitation you got from the Coleman. It's right here in my pocket. And I wish Rochester would be a little more careful with the mail. Fortunately. Yeah, he's, well, the nemesis character, because, yeah, I played a variety of things, but they were all the same fella. And he never had a name, like Mr. Kitzel, you know, had a name and so on. But if he ever referred to him by name, he just called me my name, Mr. Nelson. There you are. But what does he mean, back in America? My trip, my trip overseas last summer, you know? Oh, yeah. I still can't understand it. Say, boss, you better start getting dressed. It's 7.15. All right, Rochester. And, uh, so many people, I meet people on the street, you know, they say, hey, you're, you're that fellow on the Jack Benny show. I say, yeah, what's your name? Because they, they really didn't know you. <laughs> yeah. And while Irish tenor Dennis Day was away in the Navy, it was a relative unknown, Larry Stevens. Who temporarily replaced him. I was 20 years old at the time, mm -hmm. and uh, the Coconut Grove, they used to have a buy a bond night. And if you went down to the Coconut Grove, Freddie Martin's orchestra was there at that time. And I went down there with this friend of mine, bought a bond, and you could get up and sing or dance or 
direct the band, tell jokes, anything you wanted to do if you bought a bond. This guy uh, bought this bond and he said, okay, we got some kid here who's going to sing Stardust. And he said, oh, no, not another singer, you know. <laughs> That's all you hear at those things that people want to sing, which is understandable. But anyway, so I got up and sang a song called Stardust. They received it well. And at that night, of course, the place was full because that's where they went, at the Coconut Grove, for bond nights. That was a big meeting place. It held a lot of people. So anyway, I sang this song, and there was an agent in the audience who handled the Ritz Brothers and Ethel Merman. He called me and says, hey, kid, I want you to come to my office tomorrow. I want to talk to you. I says, what about? You know, I didn't know this guy from Adam. Mm -hmm. He said, well, Jack Benny's looking for a singer. Dennis Day's going in the service. Well, I didn't even dawn on me because I was working in the defense, but I'd been in the service and I was out. So I went and uh, signed with him and he had me audition for Mary Benny two weeks later. And then she said, I want Jack to hear him when he comes back from New York next couple of weeks. And I sang for Jack and, and Jack said to me, hey kid, can you sing the song a little higher? Because I didn't have a high voice like Dennis had. Uh -huh. see? So I sang in the hierarchy. He says, no, no, go back to your original voice. So I, I said, okay, Mr. Benny, you know. I went back that and I sang the song, which is I'll Be Seeing You. And then he came out of the booth and walked over to me with his hand out and turned to his agent and said, sign him. It was such a thrill because there was 150 guys auditioning for that show, you know. Ladies and gentlemen, thousands of thoughtful and grateful Americans are giving Christmas presents to hospitalized servicemen this year. There's one important thing to think of in selecting a gift. It should be appropriate. How can we determine what's appropriate and what isn't? By consulting the camp and hospital committee of your local Red Cross chapter. They'll tell you what types of gifts will best fit the needs of the men. And please remember, if you're mailing the present, do it by December 10th or earlier, if possible. Jack Thank Benny you. will be back in just a minute, but first, here is my good friend, L.A. Speed Riggs. Better run along now. Oh, but what about Charlie? Well, do you think that he'd be interested in astronomy? He will be when I tell him it's all about heavenly bodies. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Ray and I'll go ahead and uh, you can wait for Charlie, huh? All right, we'll see you up there. Where the treetops glisten. I copied him from a little Irish newsboy in front of the high school building, and he was a real mick, you know, cocky little funny, and I used to kid with him and so, uh, I guess they are Irishmen that look like him, but Mortimer Snurd, I have people say they know somebody who sounds and looks like Mortimer Snurd, so <laughs> that's not quite as good a compliment. Well, were you the first at the big time ventriloquist in Vaudeville at that particular time, Edgar? Well, no, we never had more than four or five ventriloquists in the country, even in Vaudeville days. I just happened to get on radio and be at the right place at the right time. <laughs> Susan, shall we go inside the planetarium? Oh, no, Charlie. No, we have to wait outside for Ray and Edgar. My, isn't it beautiful up here tonight? Yeah. And so quiet. Yeah. I wonder why there aren't any crickets. Because it would cost Bergen $2 for sound effects. <laughs> Sunday night's highest rated comedy was the Charlie McCarthy Show, starring Edgar Bergen and his famous ventriloquist dummy, Charlie McCarthy. I thought sure I felt somebody touch me. Yes, you did. <laughs> oh, Susie, let me put my arm around you, huh? Charlie, you're acting like a little child. Oh, yeah, wait till I get my arm around you. <laughs> Edgar Bergen had first come to the attention of American audiences on Rudy Valley's NBC Royal Gelatin Hour. 
on December 17, 1936. Oh, she sure knew what she was doing. In your case. <laughs> You're as refreshing as a recess. <laughs> oh, come on now. Five months later, NBC gave Bergen his own show, Sundays at 8. I'd rather look in your eyes and be bad. Bergen and his wisecracking alter ego held on to that time slot until 1953. How could ventriloquism work on radio? Perhaps Rudy Valley himself put it best the night Bergen debuted in 1936. People have been asking me for the last two days, why put a ventriloquist on the air? The answer is, why not? True, our ventriloquist, Edgar Bergen, is an unusual one, sort of Noel Coward or perhaps Fred Allen among ventriloquists. A dexterous fellow who depends more upon the cleverness and wit of his material than upon the believe-it-or-not nature of his delivery. Mr. Bergen works with a dummy, several of them, in fact, but this one is a typical ventriloquist dummy, except that it is arrayed in top hat and tail. Just imagine the dummy, and take my word for it that both voices you will hear are owned and operated by just one man, Edgar Bergen. Uh, would you mind sort of going ahead? I, I've got a stone in my shoe. <laughs> He always pulls that near a box office. <laughs> Step right up. Nine years after his first appearance, Susan Hayward was Bergen and McCarthy's guest on the December 16th, 1945 episode. Children, 25 cents. Babes in arms, free. No, no, you don't, Bergen. Put me down. Put me down. <laughs> oh, Edgar, I almost forgot. I have some passes. As time crept closer to December 25th, Christmas-themed programming began to take up a large portion of airwave time. On Friday, December 21st, Duffy's Tavern put on a hilarious East Side New York version of Dickens' A Christmas Cat. Okay, Mr. Miller, you may now announce the big piece of resistance. Right. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we now present The Christmas Carol, written by the Dickens boys, Charles and Archie. <laughs> As our scene opens, we find Ebenezer Scrooge, played by Archie preparing to go to bed in his miserable little room on Piccadilly Square. <laughs> All England is agrog with Yuletime spirit. But for miserable old Ebenezer Scrooge, there is no Christmas. At the moment, we find him in an ugly mood, writing in his diary. Dear diary, had a pleasant day today. Bankrupted three widows, foreclosed 12 mortgages, and drove nine families out into the snow. Barefooty, of course. <laughs> oh, Mr. Scrooge, sire. Oh, it is my butler, Godfrey. <clears throat> what do you want, my man Godfrey? It's getting mighty cold, and yet do you think we can afford to throw another twig on the fire? <laughs> Heavens to Betsy, man, you threw one on last Friday. <laughs> You think these twigs grow on trees? I know, but it's getting cold in here. There's icicles on the window. So what? Ain't you never seen icicles on a window before? Not on the inside, side. Uh-oh, before I forget, the widow Scratchit called this morning. Uh, Scratchit, Scratchit. Is, uh... She the widow of Willie Scratchit? I mean, Willie Scratchit? Yeah. She's she, she the one you, you work to death squeezing limes in your lime house. She says, she says you promised to pay her a pension of two pence a week. Well, get rid of her, Godfrey. 
If I have to go around paying two pence a week to every widow in Wessex, I wouldn't have a pair of pence to me name. While on the Great Gildersleeve, Gildy enlists his housekeeper, Bertie, in hiding gifts for the family. Well, well, my boy. Home from school already? I didn't go to school today. We didn't have any school. You know that. Oh, that's so. I'd forgotten. (laughs) Well, how does it feel not to have any school then, huh? Pretty fine? Um, we went through all this at breakfast. What's up? What do you mean, what's up? What are you acting so funny about? Who's acting funny? I'm merely trying to have a little conversation with you, that's all. Gosh, most of the time you won't even listen to me. <laughs> Lorene Tuttle played his niece Marjorie in the show's earliest years. So you were really all over radio, Oh, I should you? say I was. I used to do all kinds of voices, mm. too. I still can. I can go down to McGregor and sometimes do a little, little tiny girl. Gosh, I know what I hope it is. That's good. There's just one thing I want for Christmas, that's all. Just one thing. believe I've heard you mention that before. Shirley Mitchell played Leela Ransom, Gildersleeve's conniving Southern Belle girlfriend. And they wrote her so magnificent. Well, she was perfect for Gildersleeve, too, because he was a... He's absolute, such a corny. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> absolute foil for right. her, right? And uh, on that one tape that I played recently, you know, I do it for my kids, and I get such a funny feeling. It, the voice is lighter, and it's almost like deja vu. You think, oh, my God. Gosh, was I really like that? But I just loved her. She, he sings, speak to me of love to her. You know, he would <laughs> sing those corns. And she'd sigh through and do things like, oh, Throck, It was really <laughs> delicious. Leela, Merry Christmas. Same to you, Throck, <laughs> My, my, what are all those packages? Oh, I'll take some of them, will you please? Yeah, just put them down here for a second. There. Oh, Martin, what on earth? Heavy, heavy hangs over your head, Leela. <laughs> oh, Martin, I got a cold. What do I care? <laughs> Comedy wasn't the only thing on the air near Christmas Day. This episode from the life of Sherlock Holmes will be transmitted to our men and women overseas by shortwave and through the worldwide facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Petri Wine brings you Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. In December of 1945, the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes was the mutual broadcasting system's lone Monday night top ten show. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine. This incarnation starred Basil Rathbone as Holmes, Nigel Bruce as Watson, and a 32-year-old Harry Bartell as the Petri wine program announcer. Well, right about now, you're probably taking a little breather in your last-minute rush to get everything ready. I started in radio in 1930 in a very weird place called Houston, Texas. Worked with what was then one of the most unique features of radio I've ever come across. The motion picture theaters used to send out 15-minute condensations of the pictures that they were releasing in town. And if you were fortunate enough to work on these shows, you received two tickets to the theater. (laughs) And the tickets were then worth 25 cents apiece. And after I left Texas, where I've been doing a lot of little theater work, I came to California to work at Pasadena Playhouse. The announcer with whom I had started in Houston had a brother who was then at KEHE in Los Angeles. That was the Blue Network station for National Broadcasting Company. 
He introduced me to a man who had a slave mart called Allied Advertising Agencies. And through them, I started in commercials, did disc jockey work, did staff announcing, and finally declared independence one day and said, from now on, I'm going to do nothing but freelance acting. That was in 1943. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. When three unlikely heroes are plucked from jail to defend the wedding of the millennium, they're sucked into an adventure of talking gargoyles, anarchist bandits, and royal betrayal. Something old, something new, something borrowed, and something that might kill you on Join the Party. Our heroes are Johnny B. Goodlight. Undying Light be with you. An overzealous warlock and everyone's magical dad. Inara Harthorn. That was a pretty sweet flip, right? Aspiring assassin and cool queer skater teen. And designation TR8C. But you can call me Tracy. He is very adorable and he will murder you. And Game Master Eric, who plays everybody else. Like Stoneface, the easy riding gargoyle eight. If you don't know your D20 from your D8, learn the rules of Dungeons and Dragons while listening along with our beginner track. Or if you're a gaming veteran, get straight to the action with episode one. Subscribe to Join the Party on iTunes, Acast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The party's just getting started, and you're invited. Please bring ice. As night fell on Christmas Eve, a crowd of 10,000 gathered on the snow-covered south lawn of the White House to witness the lighting of the national Christmas tree. They were a mix of men and women and children with all kinds of faces. There were civilians, military personnel, some healthy and some wounded and recovering. Many in the crowd had been waiting in the frigid cold for almost three hours, singing Christmas carols to keep warm and joyous. Even a stray dog had managed to wander in and become part of the festivities. At 5 p.m., President Truman emerged through the crowd to cheers and glad tidings. The lighting ceremony had been canceled during the war, so this represented the dawn of a new era. The Norwegian spruce was adorned with donated ornaments and string after string of light bulbs. The president climbed the stairs of the ceremonial platform and acknowledged the crowd with a short smile. The Washington Choral Society sang, O Come All Ye Faithful, and the rest of the crowd joined in. At 5.15, he spoke. The president said, This is the Christmas that a war-weary world has prayed for through long and awful years. With peace, comes joy and gladness. The gloom of the war fades as once more we light the national Christmas tree. The president then pushed a button and the crowd gazed in amazement as the blinking red and green lights shone brightly with pride. President Truman had also declared a national four-day holiday to Americans to give them extra time to share with their families.
His Majesty King George the Sixth. It is. <laughs> Once again, from our home in England. If you would have turned on your radio to KNX in Los Angeles on Christmas morning at 7 a.m., you would have heard King George VI of Britain deliver a 15-minute Christmas message. It was broadcast live, coast to coast, over all NBC and CBS stations. The message was filled with both joy and a sense of mourning. Christmas of 1945 was on a Tuesday. Certain programs were preempted. The Mutual Broadcasting System presented an entire day of holiday programming, giving thanks that the war was over. Thank you, Harold. Thank you, Harold. I'm sure that was thoroughly enjoyed. I'm sure that was thoroughly enjoyed by all limited servicemen with broken hearing devices. <laughs> oh, you're very sweet, Prongpuss. Very sweet. <laughs> Listen, Bing, in case you haven't heard, I'm having a big Christmas party tonight. Free? <laughs> what kind of a shindig oh, is it you, going you to be? you haven't got any more of that um, At 1 p.m. Pacific time, from CBS's KFI station in Los Angeles, aired a special two-hour edition of Command Performance. Well, it's, wait till I see the shins, but I tell you, Bob Hope was having a party, and joining him were Jack Benny, Bing Crosby, Dinah Shore, Jimmy Durante, Ginny Sims, Arthur Rubenstein, and many others. Why do you have go any <laughs> Tell me, what do you think that I should come as? Why don't you come as a man with hair? Oh, no. <laughs> Are you kidding, Bing? I think <clears throat> you have a capital dome. Matter of fact, I noticed a little growth of fuzz there this afternoon. Isn't that nice? Mm-hmm. It's that new octane. Smooth, <laughs> very yeah. smooth stuff. Goes down easy, huh? Mm-hmm. Well, Bingo, do you think you can get to my party? I don't know, Bob. I've got to fix up our own tree for my boys. You're familiar with the Crosby Tots, no doubt. Crosby Tots? Mm-hmm. When is Gary's kid getting out of the service? <laughs> you want me to talk about... Thought you'd never make it, old boy. <laughs> I'd check about that. That's a late reaction, all right. <laughs> you get them later, enjoy them longer. <laughs> hey, let's go here. You want to talk we? about age? You want, to, want me to... Uh, talking about age, you want me to mention your USO unit at Valley Forge? That time of... <laughs> I wait so long to get something in. It's a big... Well, you've got another line. Just yeah. But you say this is going to be a masquerade party, huh? Come again? What are you coming as, really? I'm coming as the thin man. The thin man? Mm-hmm. Mm. Everybody will think you've got Asta under your vest there. <laughs> I still, I'm just in a dither. I don't know how I should appear. Well, what? why don't you make up as one of your own horses? Then you wouldn't even have to show. <laughs> you could just come as a pot of glue or something. Oh, that's <laughs> Well, if I do make it and come to your party, I suppose you'll expect some expensive trinket or bauble or something. Oh, don't let that worry you, Bing. You didn't last year. <laughs> you must be jesting. You don't remember my gift? Oh, yes, yeah, very snappy. A mother-of-pearl button hook. <laughs> I haven't worn shoes like that since my junior prom at Vassar. Bob, my dear boy, that wasn't for your shoes. I thought you could use it to take a hitch in your stays. <laughs> Look who's talking, a flesh dumpling. Merry Christmas, 
Christmas thing. Well, Donna Shaw. Well. Merry Christmas, Donna. You remember my colleague here, Bob. If it's not a yacht, throw it out, folks. You remember that? <laughs> oh, sure. I've known Bob since he was a cub. <laughs> That's not fair, Dinah. Haven't I always been platonic with you? Oh, sure. Platonic. That's hope language for what did I do with those etchings again? <laughs> are, you, are you going to Bob's party? Yes, thing I am. As a matter of fact, Bob suggested we have a progressive party. You know, at my house, we have the hors d'oeuvres turkey, cranberry sauce, dressing, vegetables, dessert, coffee, and brandy, and then we all go over to Bob's house. What for, to burp? <laughs> Opposite, NBC hosted a Christmas musical program featuring Thomas L. Thomas, an opera sopranos, Gene Dickinson, and Margaret Tom. Merry Christmas, ladies and gentlemen. From Hollywood, the Colgate Palmolive Feet Company, makers of Colgate Tooth Powder and Halo Shampoo. Take pleasure in bringing you one of America's favorite actors, Edward Arnold, in a special Christmas story, The Messiah. Edward Arnold stars as narrator and as George Frederick Handel in our special Christmas legend, The Messiah. That evening, Theater of Romance broadcast The Messiah on all CBS stations. Edward Arnold starred as the narrator and as Baroque composer George Frederick Handel in a play about recapturing the spirit of Christmas. In 1740, people were saying that George Frederick Handel could no longer write music. His enemies were saying that he never had been able to compose anything of great note. His friends were apologizing that he had been ill and that worry over money had kept him from writing the things that were inside him. He was 55 years old, and yet actually grief and pain had made him much older. It was a fitting piece for 1945. He walked uncertainly down the street, his shoulders sagging on the Christmas Eve of this most important year of his life. Broadcast from Hollywood at 6.30 Pacific Time was Fibber McGee and Molly. It isn't very often that our broadcast brings us into your home right on Christmas. All of us on the show and the makers of Johnson's Wax Products Consider it a privilege and an honor to be included in your family circle tonight. And to have an opportunity to say, Merry Christmas. those of you who've made a vow to do your shopping earlier next Christmas, we'd like to suggest that there are only 365 days left. And if you hurry, maybe you can get one of those unique and handsome articles, like the one just presented to and now being admired by Fibber McGee and Molly. Imagine old Doc Gamble giving us one of these, Molly. Isn't that the most beautiful present you ever saw? It certainly is. Yes. I haven't seen so much chromium since that was what the Silver Service Aunt Sarah sent us in 1937 turned out to be. 
And look how solid it's built. Yes. There's real construction in this. Certainly is well made. You don't pick these things up in bargain basements, kiddo. There was a lot of thought went into buying a thing like this. I'll bet there was. Yes, sir. What is it? <laughs> what do you mean, what is it? I mean, what is it? Why, it's one of those things that... Why, well, you, you use it to... Well, they sort of... I don't know what it is. Well, weren't there any directions or instructions or anything in the package it came in? Nope. Came all wrapped up in red tissue paper. Yards and yards of it. My eyes are still a little bloodshot from unwrapping it. By the way, uh, what did you send Dr. Gamble this year? A book, wasn't it? Yeah, a book. What to do till the doctor comes. The Mutual Network presents its annual summary of the news of the year. Featuring from Mutual's file of historic recordings, the voices of President Harry S. Truman, the late Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, and Dr. Lisa Meitner, discoverer of the secrets of atomic energy. Two, the Empire State Building crash. The actual sounds of history in the making. This was 1945. Running opposite of Fibber, McGee, and Molly on all mutual broadcasting system stations was their year in review program. Americans looking ahead to 1946 can remember two simple facts. One hour of looking back at 1945 and looking ahead to 1946 as the United States' changing and growing responsibility on the world stage became more evident. United Nations ambassadors are conferring in Moscow. They announced in a communique today that they have agreed on how to draw up the peace treaties. For they're trying once again to make a dream come true. A dream of man's love for his fellow man that began almost 2,000 years ago. A dream that began with him whose birth we celebrate tonight. But this was Christmas Day. And while America's growing responsibility was paramount, it could take a back seat for the rest of the evening so couples could laugh together after the children went to bed. Like at 10.30 p.m. Eastern Time when Red Skelton went on NBC and the cast was in a jovial mood. Thank you very much. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and Merry Christmas to all of you. Well, tell me, Red, what did Santa bring you? Well, socks from my mother, shoes from my father, and shoestrings from my brother. <laughs> my feet had a very Merry Christmas. <laughs> well, speaking of gifts, here's mine to you. Oh. Uh, did anyone give you an electric toaster? Well, not that I know of. Well, in case they do, this will come in handy. Gee, a loaf of bread. <laughs> Gosh, you shouldn't have done it, really. <laughs> Uh, That's something. Red, in the middle yeah. of the loaf, uh, you'll find three slices buttered. No kidding. <laughs> Why did you say it? How will I get it home now? <laughs> Life won't be worth a nickel. <laughs> well, here's my gift to you. Oh, gee, Red, that's swell. And it's so beautifully wrapped, yeah, too. Yeah, well, in case you missed the news yesterday, that newspaper will come in handy. <laughs> I hope you like them, Rod. I mean, Rod. <laughs> I'm a little nervous tonight. Yesterday, I went to Itchy's funeral. I... And if Red Skelton's Christmas show was must-listen radio, then Red Skelton's Christmas show after party 
was a must-attend event. I understand that he put on a after show for the studio audience when the regular radio broadcast. Yes, he broadcast did. At least done. an hour, sometimes an hour and a half. He got steamed up, you know, and the half-hour show didn't really satisfy him. Uh -huh. So he kept the audience there afterwards. What is it? Well, I don't know, but the price was right, so I bought it. The end of the war triggered a suburban boom as men and women got married, bought new cars, and new homes. In 1946, 3.411 million babies were born in the U.S., almost 600,000 more births than in 1945. There would never be another year with less than 3 million births in the United States again. Oh, Dinah. Hello, Hello Harry. Hello, Harry, my boy. Hi. What's the matter with you? Why, you're walking even funnier than usual. Oh, well. Oh, Groucho, poor Harry's been complaining about pains in his back. Yeah, it's that Christmas tree that Eddie Cantor gave me. Well, say, that's a pretty nice gift. After all this year, Christmas trees cost a dollar a foot. Yeah, but oh, my poor back. I still don't, I still don't understand how you hurt your back. Groucho, did you ever try trimming a six-inch Christmas tree? <laughs> Well, hey, that oh. stumps me. Uh... No. <laughs> hey, uh... The week between Christmas and New Year's can sometimes be spent returning unappreciated gifts. That's exactly what happened on Dinah Shore's Bird's Eye Open House, broadcast on December 27th. That's the perfume Groucho sent me for Christmas. Oh, oh, that reminds me, Grouch. Gee, I want to thank you for that beautiful little leather-bound address book you sent me. Oh, it's quite all right. It's a lovely book, but it's, it's already filled with phone numbers. Oh, they're, they're just a lot of phone numbers that have gotten married. <laughs> well, I don't know what to give you next year now. Yeah, just give me back the same book with some unmarried phone numbers in it. <laughs> well, I'll think it over, Groucho. But, Dinah, have you told Groucho what I gave you? Uh, yes, uh, Groucho... Harry gave me the loveliest birdcage. A birdcage? That's the seediest uh, person Groucho, I ever Groucho, heard. Her guest star for the evening was Groucho Marx. In this skit, the two attempt to return the birdcage that announcer Harry Von Zell had gifted Dinah. Come on, Groucho, we gotta get in line. Now. Don't worry, Dinah. Watch me get ahead of this line. I'm in great form. I've been trying to buy butter for the last two weeks. Well, I just hope that we. What? Groucho. What's the matter? Here comes Harry Von Zell. What am I going to do? Well, Dinah, of all people. <laughs> Harry, what are you doing here? What am I with all the usual things? Gee, you get some of the silliest things for Christmas, don't you? Oh, not me. Everything I get is just what I've been hoping for. You should have seen what my aunt hung on my Christmas tree this year. What? My uncle. She... <laughs> As a matter of fact, he'll be hung over till New Year's. Well, I... Hey, Groucho... What's that you're carrying there? This? Uh, yeah. You, you mean this? Oh, that. <laughs> that. It's a birdcage, isn't it? Uh, that, that looks like... It is, it's... Dinah. That's the birdcage I gave you. Don't tell me you're exchanging that. Look, Harry, it's you not... You keep out of this. This is a fine thing, Dinah. I give you a Christmas present, you tell me you love it, and the minute my back is turned, here you are. Well, what? don't just stand there. Say something. Uh... I just love bird's eye peas, Harry. Yeah, now don't change the subject. I'm talking. Of... Mm, you do? <laughs> I do too. They're wonderful peas, aren't they? So young and juicy and tender. Just as if you picked them out of your own garden, really. I think they're the only 
You Now, wait a minute. You're not going to throw me off. What about that bird? Hey, that was, that was swell, Larry. I'm glad you picked that one. Now, kids, let's try and get the rest of this contest mail finished so we can try... Nottingham, answer the door. Hello, 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 Bradley's the name. Steve Bradley. I'm Mr. Bennett's press agent, and I'm here to see him. Hello, hello, Mr. Bennett's bringing you on. Huh? What'd he say? Hello, Mr. Bennett's bringing you on. Well, thanks, and a happy new year to you, too. Yeah, how's the writing to see Benny? Meanwhile, on the Jack Benny program, although the cast was still reading and the judges were still judging the 275,000 entries for the I Can't Stand Jack Benny contest, Jack prepared for 1946 in his usual way. 10,000. Steve, look, Steve, wouldn't it be more sporting to forget about anything so commercial as money and keep the whole thing on an amateur basis, wouldn't it? Huh? Wouldn't it? Benny, are you crazy? You can't do a thing like that. Well, I don't see why we... Look, let me put it to you this way. Which do you value more, $10,000 or your reputation? (laughs) Uh, Better put it to him another way. (laughs) Oh, well, all right. Boy, Benny, now just hand me over that $10,000 and I'll buy the victory bonds for the prizes. But, Steve, we don't know the winners yet. We still got mail to read. Yeah, I know, I know, but you don't want anything to hold us up. I gotta go out now and buy those bonds and have them ready. Okay, okay. I'll have to go down to my vault and get the money. <laughs> uh, before I go, I want you all to repeat the oath after me. <laughs> I promise not to reveal that Jack Benny has a secret vault hidden in his home. I, I promise not, not to reveal that Jack Benny has a secret vault hidden in his home. And if I should tell anyone, either consciously or unconsciously... And, and if, if I, I should, should tell anyone, either consciously or unconsciously... May I lose my umbrella during the rainy season. May I lose my umbrella during the rainy season. Now, everybody bow their heads while I... Well... <laughs> <laughs> While I go down on the ball. my pants on the barbed wire. (laughs) Now, I better be careful about those landmines. Halt! Who goes there? Friend or foe? Friend. What's the password? Greenberg's on third. (laughs) Oh, it's you, Mr. Benny. That's right, Ed. Uh, And here's a little present for you. A present for me? Yes, Ed. Uh, Last week was Christmas. Oh, did you have a nice New Year's? Uh, no, no, Eddie. You see, it isn't New Year's yet. You see, New Year's comes after Christmas, you see. Oh, I've been away from it so long I kind of forgot. <laughs> oh, yes. 
You know, Ed, this, this year things are going to be a lot better. They're make, uh, starting to make automobiles again. Automobiles? Yes. Yeah, they're like buggies, you see, with motors in them. You know, you drive them down the street. Well, uh, won't they frighten the buffalo? <laughs> No, no, no. You see, buffalo are extinct. There are very few of them around anymore. Well, I got to get into my vault now. Shall I turn my back? No, 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 Ed. You're, you're bonded. <laughs> now, let's see. The combination is right to 45. Left to 160. Back to 15. Then left to 110. There. The factories are reconverting. Now I'll be able to buy a louder burglar alarm. <laughs> Mr. Benny, how much money are you putting in? I'm not putting anything in, Ed. I'm taking some out. My, this is thrilling. <laughs> well, well, so long, Ed. Happy New Year. Same to you. Whoopee. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. All right, Steve. Here's the money for the prizes. Uh, thanks, Benny. See you next week. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy, Happy New, New Year, Year, Steve. Happy New Year. Well, kids, that's that. Just think, another year almost gone. Boy, how they roll around. Imagine, it'll soon be 1946. I wonder what the new year will bring. I wonder what new things will come out. Science is certainly wonderful. Heliocopters, jet propulsion, atomic energy. It's amazing. I wonder what they'll... Hmm, it's kind of late. I wonder who that can be. Oh, hello. Hello. You're Jack Benny, aren't you? Why, why yes. Yes, little boy. Who are you? I'm the New Year. The New Year? But all the other little New Year's have always come on January 1st. You're early. Maybe he's trying to pick up a couple of tickets for the Rose Bowl game. <laughs> Don't be silly, Phil. Maybe there's something wrong with our calendar. No, no, I came early because 1946 looks like it's going to be a good year. And I'm raring to go. Got a lot of work to do. Automobiles, prefabricated houses, vacuum cleaners, fluorescent toupees. <laughs> The Signal Oil Program, The Whistler. That whistle is your signal for the Signal Oil Program, The Whistler. At 9 p.m. on Monday, December 31st, the Whistler, broadcast from KNX, went on the air over CBS's regional West Coast network.
And I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many The Whistler's narration acted as a modern version of the Greek chorus, omnisciently taunting the characters. Yes, I know the name. The narrator proved so popular that it was adapted into eight film noirs by Columbia Pictures between 1944 and 48. Well, there's always one thing left. Yeah. I can run for it. Hmm. They'd be waiting for you with open arms in every city from New York to San Francisco, looking for you on every freight, pictures in all the post offices. No, you don't need a lawyer, Eddie. You need a miracle. Yeah. Eddie? Yeah. Eddie, Eddie, you'll never believe it. I can hardly believe it myself. Uh, who is this? Dutch. I'm calling from a drugstore on 49th Street. There's a guy here, Eddie. A, a guy I sat right next to, maybe a foot away. What are you talking about? This guy. He's you, Eddie. Yeah, you drunk. Honest, honest, Betty. I couldn't tell a guy from you if I was touching noises. I, I never seen anything like it in all my life. All right, so what? Is that all you called me for? Well, I... Yeah, uh... shut up. I'm busy enough without having you blubber on the other end of a telephone line. So the guy looks like me, so what? Uh... matter, Eddie? Nothing. Dutch. Dutch. Yeah? Tell that guy. Don't let him out of your sight. But, uh... He's still there, ain't he? Yeah, but why? Never mind why. Tell him. Follow him home, then get back here as fast as you can. Okay, Eddie. What was it, Eddie? Uh, you hear anything? No. Good. You're all through, Brandon. You can go now. Huh? You heard me beat it. I don't want to see you again. Are you crazy? Maybe. Crazy enough to think you're right, Brandon. I don't need a lawyer. I need a miracle. <laughs> Whistler radio dramas were usually told through the perspective of the guilty person. His or her guilt was never in doubt, and there was always a strange twist at the end. A fitting episode for New Year's Eve. This one was called Miracle on 49th Street. Yes, Eddie. It was a miracle that sent Oliver Littlefield to you at the exact moment when you could use him best. And you knew how to make the most of it, didn't you? You've already decided what's going to happen from here on. How you'll suddenly disappear from Wilmont one fine morning without telling anyone where you're going. There'll be gossip about Oliver Littlefield finally wearying of his nagging wife. But after a month or so, it'll die down. South America, the Pacific Coast, Canada, there's lots of opportunity, isn't there, Eddie? Plenty of room for the smart ones. You abandon the car, Eddie Steckel's car, on the highway and hitch a ride back to town. Outside of a slight pinch in the shoulders, Oliver's gray tweed suit fits perfectly. Almost as well as your clothes fit him back there in the trees on that side road. It's 11 o'clock when you finally get back to 1214A Euclid Avenue and fit Oliver's key in the lock on the front door. And now there's that light switch. The way over the door. There. Now I... Who are you? Why, Oliver, don't you know me? Oh, uh, oh, I'm sorry, of course I... Sure, you know me, Oliver. Uh... Your wife wanted some work done in the garden. She called. Yeah. 
Oh, oh, yes. This spray. Yeah, this spray. And there was something else, though. The spading. You didn't know about that, did you? Uh, see, here, I... My name's Patoli, Oliver. From headquarters. What do you mean? You didn't know about the spading she'd ordered in the back of the yard. Or you wouldn't have buried her there the day before that class. Buried her? Sure. You shouldn't have killed her with arsenic, Oliver. Too easy to find in a post-mortem. Oh. That's it, huh? Put down that gun. Yeah. Hmm. Packing a gun. <laughs> Who would have thought it of a punk like Oliver Littlefield? Monday at 9 o'clock, the Whistler will bring you another strange... In a year filled with sadness, exuberance, and love, a macabre program like The Whistler took time to remind its audience that it almost always gets the New Year's it deserves. And along those lines, we will too. Good evening. May I present my wife, Kathy? Good evening. Tonight is our opening night, and tonight is the first day of the new year, so we're going to do a comedy for you to start our new series. Something like a spray of confetti to go with the season. A story about a young man and his wife in 1953. Nice people. Not rich, not poor. Happy with each other. You know, nice. So tonight we present String Bow Tie by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. Next time on Breaking Walls, in honor of New Year's Day, we spotlight some of what was on the air on the New Year's Days of yesteryear. The reading material used on today's episode was On the Air, the Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio by John Dunning. Christmas, 1945, the greatest celebration in American history by Matthew Litt. Network Radio Ratings, 1932-53, to 53, by Jim Ramsberg. The Museum of Broadcast Communications Encyclopedia of Radio, by Christopher H. Sterling, as well as several articles from the New York Times, Broadcast Magazine, and Radio Daily, from 1945. On the interview front, Chuck Shaden was with Mel Blanc, Hyman Brown, Phil Harris, Danny Kay, Barbara Luddy, Mercedes McCambridge, Shirley Mitchell, Frank Nelson, Olin Soule, Larry Stevens, Lorene Tuttle, and Don Wilson. All Chuck's interviews can be found at speakingofradio.com. Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran, they were with Jackson Beck, Edgar Bergen, Mel Blank, Stats Cotsworth, Howard Duff, Jim Jordan, Mandel Kramer, and Jan Miner. All of their interviews for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio can be found at goldenage-wtic.org. Spurdvac was with Harry Bartell and Jack Johnstone. 
For more information, please go to spurredvac.com. And Joe Stafford, she was with Matthew Feinstein for Joe Stafford's Ballad of the Blues, while Frank Carlin was with Westinghouse for their 1970-50th anniversary production. And Bing Crosby was interviewed for Same Time, Same Station in 1972. Selected music featured in today's episode was K-Star's The Man with the Bag, Nancy Wilson's What Are You Doing New Year's Eve, and Bing Crosby's White Christmas and I'll Be Home for Christmas. The clip of CBS's Simmerin Tavern came courtesy of Jerry Hendiges. Visit his site at otrsite.com. I've been visiting since 2002. Thank you, Jerry, and happy holidays. By the way, Breaking Walls is now on Spotify. If you listen to music there like I do, you can easily subscribe by searching for us in the podcasts. And as always, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Join the Party, the Fireside Mystery Theater, and 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Check them all out on iTunes or search for them on the interwebs. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. And thank you to three of you for a year's worth of help, information given, and all kinds of other things. I appreciate it very much. Breaking Walls Episode 87 will spotlight New Year's Day radio shows from the golden age of radio. That episode will be available beginning January 1st, 2019, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. You should also be on the lookout for a standalone piece on the conclusion of the I Can't Stand Jack Benny contest coming February 1st. And in the coming weeks, you'll hear more information on our upcoming audio drama series called Burning Gotham, which will take place in 1830s New York City. The teaser trailer was released on November 11th. It can be listened to in the Breaking Walls podcast feed and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, if you haven't yet, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever podcasting platform you listen, especially iTunes. I'll consider it the best holiday gift that you can give me. And if you've got some spare change, you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as a buck a month by going to patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So until New Year's Day, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode number 86. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.